Podmortem would like to thank Original Cinematic for sponsoring this week's episode. Original Cinematic is an independent production company that has made it their mission to create, produce, and promote films that are inclusive, honor women, promote the LGBTQIA community, and provide prominent positions and roles to POC actors and filmmakers, and promote the films of marginalized and underrepresented populations. These are all things that are extremely important to our podcast as well. Original Cinematic is proud to be a WGA signatory company, and they fully stand by the WGA, SAG, and their members in their fight for extremely reasonable standards. Accordingly, they are not accepting script or treatment submissions at this time, but both William and Zena Rush are available via email free of charge to discuss writing and provide input and resources to all aspiring writers. Their information will be made available in the show notes. Ahead of the strike, William Rush has individually produced numerous projects, including Coffee with Baba, Day by Day, They Slay, Before, Pack is Here, Abiquue, The Winemaker, and Where Do You Draw the Line? Two feature films, Group and Immersion, are slated for release this fall. Absolutely no picket lines will be crossed and no collective bargaining agreements will be violated in the making of either of these films. And very generously, Original Cinematic is providing all Podmortem patrons with a special link to view these films. If arrangements can be made, they will even schedule a virtual or in-person screening for our patrons. We cannot thank Original Cinematic enough for their contribution to our show and the horror community as a whole. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Salutations! Welcome to Podmortem. I'm Renee Hunter Vasquez, joined as always by my co-host, my husband, and my brother. Hi, I'm John Paul Vasquez. Hi, I'm Travis Hunter. This week, we're recording live from the Norville Dam, discussing the 2008 Australian horror mockumentary, Lake Mungo. This film was written and directed by Joel Anderson. Meant by Anderson to be an exploration of grief, this film capitalizes on its mockumentary style by utilizing lesser-known actors, real settings, and improvisation. Lake Mungo tells its intriguing story in a simmering slow burn that opens the door to theories, cementing it as an underrated gem for many horror fans. This film was requested to us by friends of the show, Des Troyer 677 and Sophie Hodson. We want to thank them both for their support as well as this suggestion. This film was also the winner of our November Patreon poll, so thank you to all of our patrons who participated and voted. If you want to help us pick an episode, join us over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash thepodmortem. So, what did you guys think about Lake Mungo the first time you saw it? I don't remember uh, the exact time, first time I seen it, but I know I watched it with your sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember really liking the movie, and that was it. I'll be honest. I just remember being like, man, that was great. Then time had passed. This won the poll. Um, Watching it again. uh, Still a really good movie. There is some heavy stuff. It is sad. But goddamn, the, the, like, some of the effects and stuff in the movie, really good. I heard you stop yourself. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you yeah. did it. You did it. <laughs> but I appreciate it. <laughs> it's like not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Not <laughs> yet. <laughs> we, we can't. Yeah, Spoiled. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but the movie is this movie, and and you saying that about them using lesser known actors and like. I feel like that really, 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 and I'll say one more, really helped the fuck out of this movie because you, you know, this being a mockumentary and all that, you feel like this shit is real mm -hmm. and it, it works with every emotion that they put in this movie and you do feel sad and you do feel other emotions and, um, but <laughs> I'm still trying to, no, I got you. <laughs> yeah. but it is, um, it is a really well crafted movie, and I did enjoy this. It it is it is a little little more out of my comfort level than I, I'll I'll admit, but it is it was really good, and it is really good. A lot of what they do in this movie works fucking perfectly. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, I remember Nay and I watched this the first time shortly before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We used to hang out every single Tuesday. We would get breakfast, watch a movie or two, have lunch, and then I would take you home. Mm -hmm. And uh, we made a list of all these movies. I don't know how Lake Mungo ended up on this list, mm -hmm. but I do remember us watching it. Um, very cold, very dark in the room and the movie. And I, I remember more the experience of it right. than the details of it. Okay. And I remember my reaction to such big revelations, mm -hmm. but I don't remember how they unfold. Right, right. And so I came away from it, from that experience, and we've talked a lot about how the time just before the pandemic is kind of just lost. Yeah. yeah. And so anything that we watched then, it is just gone. Mm -hmm. But it was very exciting to see this win the poll. Yeah, yeah. And to know that I would get to experience it again fully. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Jules. This is one of their favorite horror films. Okay. And so that only excited me more to see what this film is. Right. And actually watch it and remember it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I did want to talk about because you were talking about how well crafted it is. Yeah. And I was trying to think as well because there was something that me and Jules talked about about this film being oddly cozy. Right. There's something comfortable about this film. And I think I found the answer for why that is from a blog written by the cinematographer. Okay. He had talked about them using 40 different cameras for this film, oh which is just wild to even consider. Yeah. But when you think of all the different things that we see, we talked about the differentiation of two different uh, things last week in Demons. Mm -hmm. Right. But this requires countless more mm -hmm. and so when you think and he listed it's 35 millimeter super 16 hd digital beta max or digital beta cam high 8 super 8 vhs mobile phones like all of these things working together mm -hmm. this marriage of all these different technologies and you think of that craft going into it that kind of forethought yeah yeah but you also think about these older technologies and what they mean to all of us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe that's part of where some of this coziness comes from Okay, I, I yeah, cause it, cause it, uh, I feel like sometimes when we see things, and you can tell, like we talk about it a lot with CGI, when it looks good, it looks good, but you're watching it, and it's like whatever, and you're like, oh, this movie's great, but when we see these different lower grade quality cameras or like things that shots that are shot that way in the movie, 
and they look like things that we're used to seeing every day. That's the way the camera video, the video looks on my phone. Yeah. If I zoom in too much, if I whatever, yeah. if I'm looking at a camcorder, holy shit, that's what I see. That's how I'm operating it, whatever. So it does kind of feel familiar. And that is exactly what I, yes. Yeah. And the thing for that, that you normally see in films these days is they'll shoot in modern technology mm -hmm. and use it to kind of rough it up. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't feel the same mm. as if you were to just use these technologies. Yeah. And so for them to go that extra mile and maybe it is a matter of budget and may have been easier, I don't care. It works. <laughs> it does. It yeah. works. And I, I read that Anderson had said that he wanted part of this to be kind of an exploration of the way that we capture our memories and moments in technology. Okay. And that's perfect. Yeah. All right. But this film for me, um, aside from it being well-crafted, mm -hmm. it is so tragic. Yeah. It is very quietly frightening, mm -hmm. but it's frightening in a very compelling way and not the standard um, jump scare or gore. Yeah. It's frightening in a very human way. Mm -hmm. And there was something brought up in that blog that I kind of caught on to as I was watching it and it's kind of using this medium of a documentary mm -hmm. they're also challenging the authority of the medium of documentaries because of the way that they show like this present yes. yeah yeah and the level of believability and accuracy and who we believe and who we choose to believe and yeah there's a lot going on here and it keeps you guessing narratively Oh, yeah. <laughs> In a way that is normally you would think with as many things that they do, it it wouldn't work. Yeah. But every single revelation, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. I'm, I'm even deeper in this. Yes. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the last thing I wrote as far as my first impressions is that this film is something that not only haunts your mind, it haunts your heart. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know how to follow that, but um, <laughs> yeah, like you said, the first time that we watched it was together and it's exactly like you said, I remember the way that it made me feel. I don't think that I'm giving anything away when I say that there are so many twists in this story mm -hmm. that I did not remember all of them. No. And then I had told John Paul, I, I want to say it was last October that we watched it. I could right. be wrong, but. I we watched it together and again it was that like oh my god like it's just such an intense experience and then like you said when John Paul had started it the other night and he was like I don't remember watching this at all it's like your yeah, your yeah. mind like heals itself after you watch it <laughs> like I don't obviously now that we've dived so deep I don't think that I'm gonna be able to uh, be lucky enough to be surprised by any of it again right but it is it's such a unique film in that way that it's like, yes, I remember this aspect and that aspect. And even now reading, I went on a fucking Reddit is, is wild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have a lot of things to say about this and reading that. I feel like I have a different opinion on really what happened here. Interesting. And I read a theory that I'm like, okay, that I could see where you would get that from. I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think we can talk about it until the very end, but it's just so interesting the way and it, it it is when you watch it it feels like a Netflix documentary. Yeah. The the B shots, the, I mean every aspect of it it is as an avid documentary watcher, it is 
almost perfect. Um, the way that they tell the story, the, the with the interviews, and I mean all of it, it the splicing it, it is it's so like how many documentaries did y'all watch to get the vibe <laughs> for this? Because it, it's very accurate. Yeah, and it is like watching a documentary in the fact that we all had that moment where we're watching um making a murderer and we all came away with something different or a lot yeah. of people came away with different things it's like that where it's like mm, i don't know that person was kind of shady to me and then another person's like i didn't feel that way at all you know it's very interesting in that regard in the fact that i read there was a script outline but there was no dialogue written really and so it's it's improvised and that it just adds to the authenticity yeah, because yeah. there are times i think t you've said it before in movies where you're like i can see that on the page uh, yes like yeah. i i can see the line the way that you're delivering it this feels like people are just talking and there were a lot of every time i would look up something for lake mungo there were people online asking if it was real because it feels authentic mm-hmm I read an interview with the actors that sometimes they'll be at an airport or on the bus and someone will say, hey, I'm sorry oh because of, yeah, because <laughs> wow. they think oh, yeah. that it really happened. Well, it's, it looks, I mean, if you would have shown me that and been like, this is real. Yeah. Yeah. I probably, I'd be a little skeptic, but I'd be like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> what, what is this? What did you just Why show me? Why would you show me something? Yeah. <laughs> you mean that really happened? <laughs> And I'll tell you, they had said, <laughs> I read an interview because the director does not do interviews about this. Yeah. yeah. That's what your sister was telling me. I read an interview in media and culture from whenever the film premiered and he did an interview then, but then he kind of just disappeared. Yes. Yeah. But that was one of his intentions was hoping that a few years down the line, people would find this on TV and not know it was a film. <laughs> what the fuck? And it, I mean, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like one a lot of the time yeah i mean if you take away some of the the bigger you know Mm -hmm. moments if you're a skeptical person that you wouldn't believe whatever it feels like a documentary and um just the way that that is able to be accomplished is astounding it is incredibly sad incredibly sad like when you are like i don't know if i can handle any more of this it lets up a little bit and then you're right back in. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's yeah, it's it's truly devastating. It is an emotionally exhausting experience. But I think that the way that the horror is delivered, it's so worth the emotional toll. It's so worth the um, the slow burn because we were talking earlier and I said it's such a slow burn. But once that fuse runs out, it does not like it is nonstop. Your yeah. jaw drops and then drops and then dro- and then your jaw's on the floor. You're like Jack Skellington. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't like I got to dig a hole so my jaw can <laughs> yes. continue to <laughs> can't go any further. Um, and it's worth a second watch. Yes. Oh, yeah. I read um, when I was doing my research after I had rewatched it and completed the script and everything. Apparently, Mike Flanagan is a huge fan of this film. I was going to talk about that. And... There is an aspect of this that he, I think he clearly took influence from in a work of his. Okay. He recently joined Letterboxd, mm-hmm. Mike Flanagan, and he wrote a five-star review for Lake Mungo. Right. And at the end of it, he said that traces of this film are clearly seen in his work. 
Yeah. Okay. And so there because you go. Because that's yeah. what that's what it like the connection in my brain was like, oh, this is just like blank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I read that and I was like, oh, this is just like <laughs> blank. <laughs> just a little bit more on the production and how the film came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Anderson, in the interview that he gave, he said that he had actually written a much more complicated script that would be very difficult to film. It was a completely separate project. But after he was finding trouble financing it, Mm -hmm. that's when he got this idea to create something purposefully manageable. He said he wanted to make something bite-sized that they could shoot over weekends and finance themselves. Okay. And so that's kind of how Lake Mungo came to be, along with these ideas and these themes that he wanted to explore that you talked about in your intro. Mm -hmm. Conversations about technology, um, conversations about grief and loss, and... As we talked about all these different technologies, the quality of the film becomes a character all on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that he counted on. And he told the financiers, he's like, we don't need 35 millimeter with a story we're trying to tell. Yeah. And so there is such a genuine fear of these things that are explored in this film. Mm-hmm. And that's what he wanted to capture. Okay. Was something that we can all relate to and kind of discuss these topics around grief and tragedy Mm -hmm. that is so interesting to me because i feel like this is the third week in a row we are doing this and then we did demons before and before that we did old boy and it feels like a common thread in all of those is that the film that we got does not look like the film that was planned to be made Mm -hmm. yeah and i feel like that is like kind of really inspiring that just because things aren't kind of working out the way that you thought it was supposed to look does not mean it's not going to be amazing. True. Because yeah. the films that were supposed to have gotten, it wouldn't have been this. Oh, no. Yeah. It wouldn't have been old boy demons like Mungo. It wouldn't have been <laughs> no. any of those things. <laughs> and I got to be honest, where you were going with that, I was like, I am very, very excited to see how Nate connects Humberto <laughs> <laughs> Baba's demons to Lake Mungo because they're exactly the same. <laughs> they're the same thing. <laughs> now before we document this film we would like to issue a warning for spoilers Podmortem is a very in-depth podcast and thoroughly discussing horror films we have no choice but to spoil a thing or two if you don't wish to be spoiled please go watch the film then come back and enjoy the show if you've already seen the film or don't care about spoilers then let's take a dip the film opens on black and white spirit photos we hear alice palmer played by talia zucker Say that she feels like something bad has happened to her, but it just hasn't reached her yet. I have a couple of things already. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, Alice Palmer. Yes, mm-hmm. I knew I, and I have not watched it yet. Mm-hmm. And tomato, you need tomato, to. tomato, tomato. I know. <laughs> um, and Miguel also needs to watch it. Oh, don't throw, <laughs> don't throw friends of the show under the bus because you're afraid or whatever. <laughs> because you're ashamed. <laughs> but but I did know that you were going to bring this up. Yes, there is there is an influence of David Lynch in this film. Okay, but specifically Twin Peaks. Yeah, Alice Palmer in this, Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even a character that is kind of Doctor Jacoby ish. If uh, people watch okay. Twin Peaks. Um, and uh, as well, there's one iconic shot in this film that is very reminiscent of an iconic shot from the pilot of Twin Peaks. 
Oh, oh right. okay. And so I, I feel the influence there, and I uh, very much appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, that's the show with Orson, huh? Yes. Right. From See, Desperate I'm Housewives. A... Yeah. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was also in Sex and the City. Very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a career he's had. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I did want to say, uh, we got to get all our laughs in now. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. For the, for a little bit, this is gonna be pretty pretty uh pretty rough. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just taking it where I can get it. Yes. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. Um, but I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. Maybe one of the best opening lines in a film for me probably top 10 yeah yeah that is a great great line well and the line over the photos it really already like you get this sense of dread yeah yeah they, and i the eeriness of these like phantom photographs mm-hmm. i did see at the end credits they're credited to people who took and own these photographs oh okay so these are real spirit photographs quote oh, unquote. Uh-huh. All right. it's fascinating um, I, I, I did enjoy it. For me, it kind of felt like that. You're probably wondering how I got <laughs> So I was like, okay, I You're guess like, let's see what's going to happen. Where's the record scratch? Yeah. Well. <laughs> but we cycle through more photos and the voice of Jason Whittle, played by Marcus Costello, admits that he doesn't understand how it's helpful to people to make up stories about ghosts. The voice of Kim Whittle, played by Chloe Armstrong, adds that Alice kept secrets. She even kept the fact that she kept secrets a secret. I think that that is a very important line as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the documentary keeps secrets from us. Yes. So it's almost a little teaser. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Music mounts as the photos continue. And June Palmer, played by Rosie Trainer, says that she knows it's hard for people to understand, but you have to believe you are to blame or there's nothing to hold on to. We see a photo of June standing outside her home, posing with her husband, Russell Palmer, played by David Pledger, and their son, Matthew Palmer, played by Martin Sharp. We zoom in slightly on the photo before it cuts to black. Now, I did notice that Matthew spells his name the same as your middle name. I Yes, I wrote that down as well. I also noticed my name was similar. (laughs) Because we don't, you don't see that very much. It's one T. I was appreciative. I added a point. (laughs) (laughs) But text on screen reads, in December 2005, a tragic accident began a series of extraordinary events that thrust a grieving family in the small Victorian town of Ararat into the media spotlight. This film is a record of those events. We see grainy footage of the Palmer family walking down the street before it cuts to a scenic view of the sky. I did want to say that this film, when it comes to recontextualizing things that we've seen. Yes, I don't know a film <laughs> that has done it more effectively. Yeah, that's why I'm like, mm-hmm. rewatch this yeah. after you watch it the first time. Mm-hmm. And these shots, these atmospheric shots of Ararat. Yeah. What I read from that blog from John Brawley, the cinematographer, he had said that they went to Ararat like months and months before they began production mm-hmm. because they wanted to give the feel that the documentary crew had been there with the Palmer family for over a year. Ah, okay. Mm. And so you'll see a lot of these B-roll shots are of all different like seasons, times. It's very, again, very thorough, very well crafted. Mm -hmm. We're treated to June's emergency call made on December 21st, 2005. She says that her daughter Alice has gone missing after going to the dam. 
The emergency call operator, played by Roberto J. Salvatore, asks when the last time she saw Alice was, but the connection begins to break up. Through the static, the operator asks where June is, and she tells him that they're on the other side of the dam, but that Alice has been missing for quite a few minutes. Her worried voice asks him to just send someone. The operator tells her that she needs to talk to him for a second, but June begins to cry, saying that they don't know where she is. We see shots of the town of Ararat before it gives way to black and we get the title in white text, Lake Mungo. That was a little creepy with yeah. the call cutting out when she was calling the 911. Yeah. And it, it, that was, uh, uh, that kind of set me to think like something again, obviously something's wrong, but the way the call was cutting in and out, I mm-hmm. was like, okay, what are we in for? And I got to be honest, just like Nay, Watched a lot of documentaries in my day, mm-hmm. a lot of true crime documentaries. Their use of the call, the B-roll around yes. the call, yes. mm-hmm. this is exactly what these documentaries yeah. do visually. I also, and this is probably reading too much into it, but this is a film where it is very easy to read too much into things. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting to me now, looking back, that the call starts to break up when he asks... When is the last time you saw her? Mm-hmm. Again, probably reading too much, yeah. but you know, watching this film and then spending too many hours on Reddit reading about this film, we'll do that. To you, so. <laughs> Reporter Richard Brooks, played by Richard Kelly, narrates over a news package that the tranquil setting of the Norville Dam has been shattered by the disappearance of 16-year-old Alice Palmer yesterday. She went missing while picnicking with her family. Sergeant Sandy Druin, played by Carol Petullo, stands outside the dam, telling the viewers that they received the call at about 6 p.m. and they called in search and rescue divers from Melbourne. We see them surveying the waters and going out on boats, their flashlights cutting through the darkness of the night. Richard Brooks says that they went into the water at about 10 p.m. with volunteers, but the search was fruitless. We watch as the search continues, even as the sun rises and shines overhead. I think simply speaking, the circumstances of this disappearance, mm-hmm. they aren't, they do get discussed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not as much as you would think, especially considering they were all at the dam together. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So I think that to me is, is another thing that lends itself to some speculation. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when you think about it, it, it was it a split second? They're there. She's there. Well, yeah, they I mean, like that's 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 even more frightening. They say how it happens, but it is like that very like fast. And she's 16. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's very frightening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The voice of Russell says that Matthew and Alice had swam out into the middle of the dam and he could still see them from the picnic area. In a documentary interview with Matthew, he sits in his room and says that they'd been swimming in the water for about 15 minutes before he started to get too cold. He told her he was getting out and she didn't want to go with him. So he assumed she was just wanting to stay in the water. In an interview with Russell, he says that he remembers Matthew getting out of the water. And then a few minutes later, he heard Matthew ask where Alice was. He got up and looked over to the water, but it was completely still. He says that he called out for his daughter. June speaks in her interview as we see the Palmer family working together and surveying the water. She says that she looked over the water to try to find Alice and that Russell and Matthew had already checked the bushlands behind the water. 
Matthew says that he found Alice's towel and he could tell that she hadn't gotten out because it was still on the ground. He says that this was the last time he saw his sister. I think that's what is so shocking to me because typically speaking, when you see a documentary like this, Mm -hmm. it is them maybe waking up in the middle of the night and Alice is not at at home. Yeah. Yeah. And then this comes later. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're all at the dam is not your standard way of beginning this. No. And it's just so much more mysterious, so much weirder. Yeah. And it's broad daylight. Yeah. Yeah. In home video footage from December 12, 2005, we see Alice posing with her parents before letting go of them and giggling. Now, June looks alone over the serene water of the dam. In the news package, Richard Brooks continues that people hold grave fears for 16-year-old Alice Palmer, again, who has disappeared. We see the search and rescue team in their boats searching the dark water. Back in his interview, Russell says that they were told to go home and that they'd be notified if anything was found. Over serene footage of the town and the blur of a car's headlights moving through trees, June's voiceover comments that it was a very strange drive home with one empty seat. We see Russell, his arms around both of his children, all three laughing and wrapped in towels. Footage from that fateful day at the dam, December 21st, 2005, and we freeze on this for a moment. I did want to mention I read in an interview with Split Tooth Media, they were talking about the actors and how they were cast. Uh-huh. Originally, they had wanted to do and was Anderson's first idea was to cast a real family. Oh, wow. Oh, geez. But it proved difficult and then they decided to expand and cast who they did. But because of the way that the budget was, they didn't have a lot of time for rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And so what they did is the actors who played the Palmers met and then they spent time together as a family to bond before the rehearsal process started. I love that. That's so smart. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are these genuine moments of them being a family in these older archival reels i guess Mm -hmm. and they feel genuine yes um everything about their relationships feels genuine everything they say there is so much depth of character yeah in these interviews and you really learn a lot about every single member of the family yeah and that helps that helps a lot and hearing you say that i'm i'm glad to hear that because they play together great as Mm -hmm. a family Mm -hmm. and that helps sell a lot of the emotion and shit that's going on yeah but we cut to an interview of georgie ritter played by tania lentini she says that she went home with the palmers that night and it was just them waiting for bad news that was the expectation in an interview with june's parents garrett and iris long played by robin cumming and judith roberts iris says that russell called them that night and said there'd been an accident and alice had gone missing She said that they immediately knew that they needed to go to Ararat. Georgie says that she could tell that June felt strange being around Iris. In her interview, June admits that it was strange having her mother there. Both of them being there for Alice didn't feel like the right order of things. We see a photo of Iris, June, and Alice before Iris admits that it was a terrible night. Garrett piggybacks on this, the worst night of our lives. Over a still of Alice's room, June says that she went in there that night. Alice's phone went off a couple times, but she didn't answer it. As she speaks, our view of the room slowly dims to black. June continues that the bed was made, and she couldn't help but think how neat everything looked. The creeping of that 
exposure going. Yes. Yeah. It's very eerie and it is just such an interesting choice. I feel like they make a lot of interesting choices mm -hmm. like that, but I appreciate all of them. We get nighttime shots of Ararat before we join Jason Whittle at a huge rock pile in the bright sun. He says that June called him to tell him that Alice was missing and presumed drowned. He says that it's not like he didn't believe her, but it was hard for him to accept. We see a photo of Alice on Jason's back with Kim and their friends looking at them smiling. He says that he called Alice's phone to see if maybe, hopefully, it was just a joke. I will admit that I had my suspicions about one Jason Whittle. <laughs> <laughs> really? I did, and it was simply because of how often he smiled. Yeah. But I read an interview that Anderson told every actor, you're not used to being on camera. That I felt like okay. it was very all nervous right. energy. And yeah. so I, I was like, all right, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Jason Whittle. You're yeah. free to go, I guess. <laughs> the only evidence I had <laughs> was that you smile a lot. So it wouldn't have held up in court anyway. <laughs> and clean up these rocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. seriously. They're filthy. Yeah. No. It's graffiti <laughs> all over. Yes. Yeah. It does add character, though. Yeah, it does. <laughs> In an interview with Kim Whittle, she says that it was all a shock. It didn't feel like it was real. Everything was the same as always, but Alice had drowned. In his interview, Russell is asked if he has any memories from that night that stand out for him. Russell says that he remembers that they left the porch light on. They still leave it on, just in case. We see that this is true, the light shining from the dark porch of the Palmer's home. When he's asked why they do this, Russell is momentarily lost for words, and with a nervous laugh, he admits that he guesses it's just in case she comes home. His smile slowly falters. So this is heartbreaking. I did want to talk a little bit more about these character moments because they all feel so genuine in yes. these interviews. And they're, they're so real and there's such small choices that are made from these actors mm -hmm. that only lend themselves to this believability of this being a real documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I did read in that interview that with so many characters that pop in, some of them for brief scenes even, mm -hmm. each actor was given a full explanation of the film all the details of it and the style of performance necessary for mm. what they needed okay but the thing is as you said during our intro was that the film was not scripted yeah it was only outlined and so with these i think they only had if i'm not mistaken they said a fortnight of rehearsals all right oh my god and their rehearsals only consisted of the director asking them questions as if it were a documentary. Yeah. And so getting their answers that they were coming up with then and there because they don't have a script. <laughs> <laughs> and so the amount of character that they're able to fit in to these people and flesh them out all the way from the actors' perspectives. Yeah. There is a lot of freedom in an up in improvisation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's also a lot of pressure, Anderson said, on the actor to create. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I just I was so blown away when you only have five weeks to shoot the film. Literally. What's a fortnight? Two weeks? Yeah. yeah I was gonna say something like that. So I mean th what they've done is remarkable. Yeah. Hell yeah. And that's this this scene here that I was like I, I 
that kind of broke me. I was like, oh. God damn it. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to be sad, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what this is going to be. Yeah. I was telling T this morning, it's like an identity when she's like, will you stop? He can't take anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I was like, please. I want to say as the documentarian to ask him, are there any memories from that night that stand out to you? Oh, the the most tragic night of yeah, my, my entire, entire life. life. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think about it. Yeah. Like, you know it's, what? Yeah, there is. Yeah, actually, the most traumatic event ever. Yeah. Um, no, no shit. I, I forgot to mention the interviewer is the writer director mm. in an uncredited oh, role. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. But it is it, you know, the improvisation adds so much. You know, it's just like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Exactly. Yes. Right. It's exactly it's like Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's like demons. It's like Curb Your Enthusiasm. And old boy. And old boy. All rolled into one. You got so Larry Lake David's Mungo. Come later, right? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> But in more video from the dam, we zoom in on Alice's face and freeze. In a police video from December 24th, 2005, the divers are still hard at work. One assists another in lowering a bright yellow board into the water. Sergeant Druin is interviewed at the police station, and she tells the documentarian that they found Alice's body using sonar at about 9.25 p.m. She had drifted away and came to rest on the shelf of the dam. She says that they immediately contacted the family. As Russell speaks, we see the divers pulling Alice's body out of the water on the yellow board. Russell says that they went to the dam as soon as they got the call and Georgie came to stay with Matthew. He says that everything was official and formal and he had to sign statements. June stayed in the car and now he realizes that that was a mistake because she didn't get any closure. June says that she just couldn't bring herself to do it. Alice had been underwater all that time, and that's not the way she wanted to remember her. But Russell says that he felt that it was his duty as a father. That's what a father does. We are hit with horrible photos of Alice's bloated and blue body, her mouth open and her skin mottled. There are glimpses of the paperwork Russell had to sign, the date scribbled out and rewritten as December 24th. So again, such a haunting visual. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the added tragedy of it being on Christmas Eve. Yes. For this poor family. Mm-hmm. This is a more gruesome version of that iconic shot from Twin Peaks. Mm. Okay. Um, but I, I just feel like the detail in this paperwork, mm-hmm. the believability of these performances, everything, again, you catch this at night, like five years after the film comes oh, out. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a documentary you've never seen before. Yes. Yeah. Russell says that on the way back from the dam, the car stalled, and the only gear he could get it into was reverse. This is chilling mm-hmm. visually. I don't know why, but we see a car reversing in the dark as he says that that's how they drove back into town. It was either that or walk, and it seemed fitting for everything they'd been through. I think that it's chilling because it's kind of a metaphor for grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, that's, you know, I just think that, it, and again, it's such an intricate and fascinating detail to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you do feel this being indicative of this feeling of living in this past yeah um wanting to change this past yeah and confusion at why you know there's just Mm -hmm. yeah so many feelings over footage of a sleek and sterile autopsy room iris says that the autopsy was performed on the next monday the 27th then the coroner released the body the next day on tuesday 
She said it was very strange spending Christmas with the family while Alice was lying in a morgue. We see the funeral directors, played by John Dunn and Lori Dunn, standing awkwardly next to caskets before sweeping past the hollowed pews of the funeral home. I think they're about to drop the most fire album <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of 2008. It was so awkward. Either that or sell you some furniture. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck. I don't know what, but like, take, take the picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You got what you need? We have a lot of business today. (laughs) Matthew says that it didn't even feel real. And June calls death the meanest, dumbest machine there is. It just keeps coming. It takes everything and it doesn't care. She says there's really nothing else to know about it. In a news package, Genevieve Trudeau, played by Kirstie McDonald, reports from outside the funeral home where the Palmers are saying goodbye to their daughter and sister. It's like, y'all can't do this. You have to do this here and now. Yeah. Yeah, this is a little. uh, But again, it feels like commentary. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. Kim tells the reporter that Alice was popular, clever, and lovely. Genevieve recounts Alice's zest for life until her voice fades out and we're back at the table with Georgie. They do also say that Alice was fun-loving, which I always thought was an odd descriptor of a person. Yeah. It's like, if there's one thing I remember about Alice, loved fun. Yeah. Now, she me, was weird like that. Me, I hate fun. <laughs> I don't like having it. I don't like talking about it. Well, there's <laughs> people all, like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're all fun-loving. They all lit up a room. Mm-hmm. I would love for it to be like, you know, when she came in, the room g- got heavier, <laughs> <Yeah>. got darker. <laughs> it reminds me of this Norm Macdonald joke. She never left. He was, <laughs> he was talking about that. And he's like, she lit up a room. She didn't have like a fucking light or nothing like that. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> she could just light up a room. <laughs> but sitting next to Leith Ritter, played by Cameron Strachan, Georgie recalls that it was a very hard time for the Palmers, but when she thinks back at it now, it's hard to imagine how much worse it would get. Worse like a murder mystery or like a ghost mystery? Mm. Well, um, find out. We don't know. But it's like just that. It's like how? Yeah. It's what JP teased in the intro with with one One letter. As a storm gathers around the Palmer home, we get shots of the still interior. Russell says that 10 days after Alice's funeral on January 15th, strange things started happening around the house. There were noises on the roof, sounds coming from the windows and movements that came from Alice's room. He says that they rehung the door and got someone to come and check for termites. We see Russell pacing around his home as he reveals that nothing worked. Doors kept slamming and they still heard strange noises. I did want to talk about the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the production designer, Penny Southgate, had said that the house was something that they needed to become a character in the film all its own. Okay, mm-hmm. It needed to be old. It needed to have a high roof, long hallways, and they found the perfect house for the film in Victoria. Okay. But the interesting thing about some of the production design and set design is that they got the location manager's daughter, who was around Alice's age, Mm -hmm. to do drawings for them, and they planted them- Oh, around nice. like yeah. the rooms and everything yeah. but i feel like this house does have a lot of character it, it does. does it feels lived in yeah and whether we're exploring it through footage we'll see later mm-hmm. or footage that we see through the b-roll of the documentarians yeah everything just kind of lends itself to this just eeriness yeah 
Before we join Georgie at the table again, we see an interesting shot of the house where it looks like lightning is flashing inside. That house shouldn't. No, (laughs) no. Georgie says. (laughs) He sounded so concerned. No. (laughs) No. Get that check. (laughs) Call somebody. (laughs) Georgie says that there was always something weird about the Palmer house. She can't explain it exactly, but just going into the house gave you a bad feeling in your gut. We see what happened to that family that lived in the poltergeist house. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, let's get out. Of yeah, it. get out. Even the house was like, "I'm getting out of here." Yeah, <laughs> fuck, fuck this. <laughs> June reveals that she had horrible, vivid nightmares that made her not even want to open her eyes when she woke up. She says that in one that was recurring and especially vivid, Alice would come down the hall, still wet with water from the dam. She would stand at the end of their bed just looking at them. She reiterates that the nightmare was so scary that she wouldn't want to open her eyes. By February, her nightmares were so bad that she started going for walks at night. They would sometimes last for hours just so that she didn't have to go to sleep. She admits that she would go into people's houses sometimes. She didn't feel like she was doing anything wrong by doing this because she really just wanted to be in someone else's life for a moment. This is really glossed over. Yeah. Because you just said something really, really big. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I take things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was my note was, I hope you're not stealing. That, <laughs> nothing, nothing big. Yeah. <laughs> If you're sitting down watching TV uh-huh. and I know you're my neighbor from down the block, whatever, it's like, June, what what are you what doing, are you doing? At my home now? If you're gathering all my silverware and every and you're just like, oh, I'm just taking shit to take shit. I'll, I'm probably <laughs> just, gonna have a different reaction. Unless, 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 hold on. Maybe this is to set precedent that people around here don't really lock up. See, and I think that, that okay. that's a good little uh what do they call it? You know breadcrumb seed yeah seed. Right. yeah but i was like you what you yeah. what yeah and it's funny later when they talk about it briefly only and then they never bring it up again yeah, yeah. but it really does explain how something else happens yeah, yeah. so good well good. shit okay yeah we got there <laughs> <laughs> back at the table with georgie the interviewer asks if she remembers what was going on with russell at the time She says that he was working a lot and presumes that that helped him with some of his grief. We see Russell sitting behind his desk in a room with his co-worker, Frederick Roskamp, played by James Lawson. In an interview with Frederick, he says that he and Russell met on a project together in 98, so they've known each other for years. We see them out surveying grounds as the interviewer asks how Russell changed after the tragedy. Frederick says that he just went back to work, but he really didn't know what to say to Russell after it happened. The interviewer asks if they really never spoke about it, and Frederick confirms this. While he was concerned, he says that everyone grieves in their own way, and he didn't want to butt in on that. In Russell's interview, he says that he was grateful to have his work, even though that did make him feel a bit guilty because he just wanted to get on with it. He says that one night in late February, he was sitting alone in the kitchen when he heard a noise in Alice's room. He says he went over there and he doesn't know why, but he sat down in front of her dresser. Before he could even realize what he was doing or why he was doing it, Alice walked in the room. She sharpened a pencil and checked her phone. He says that he was totally freaked out, but she was oblivious to him. He says that he must have made some kind of noise and it made her go completely rigid. 
Now that she knew he was there, he says that she turned slowly toward him and then came at him suddenly, screaming at him to get out. So he did. We cut to June, who says that she and Matthew found Russell sobbing in the kitchen, inconsolable. So at this point, this is one of the scariest things you've ever heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very indicative of some kind of haunting. Yeah. Uh, Evidence of it, of a person's experience. Yeah. But God damn, does it get recontextualized. Yes. Yeah. In maybe one of the saddest moments I can think of and a way that so tragically represents the non-linear yeah. thoughts of a grieving person. Yeah. yeah. The interviewer asks Frederick if he really believes that Russell saw a ghost. Frederick says that he does believe Russell. Russell is not a man that would make things up. Frederick doesn't know if it was an actual ghost that Russell saw, but he believes him when he says he saw something. So a ghost mystery. Mm. We see Alice's room, the light slowly dimming to blackness. And I will say, I believe he saw what he says he saw is not a good friend. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's... That's hurtful. <laughs> you don't believe me. Yeah. Clearly. I was just thinking of yeah. uh, Renee from Insidious. Mm-hmm. You don't believe me. <laughs> he moved houses, houses for you. you. <laughs> <laughs> we watch as Georgie gathers flowers and heads into a church. Her voice tells us that she went to the church to see if there was anything that could be done for the Palmers, but no one knew what to do. She thinks that part of the reason is because the Palmers weren't churchgoers, so they didn't know how to offer them comfort. She says that she doesn't even know what June believes in. Now, I thought that this was a seed. Yeah. Slash breadcrumb. And I don't know if it is. I think it could be as far as her going to a particular person later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I will say I forgot the comment, but I do think that what they said about her and her relationship with her mother yeah. mm-hmm. is much more of a breadcrumb. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, yeah. We see a picture of Matthew and Alice sitting and smiling on a bed in a silly pose as their mother looks on. Georgie says that she was most worried about Matthew because he and Alice were so close. We see Matthew loading film into a camera as Georgie continues that he was spending more and more time alone and they were all very worried about him. So a murder mystery. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) We cut to Dr. Kenan Slatter, played by Philip Bolton, sitting in an exam room. He says that Matthew came in with unusual bruises on his body. He outlines that they were unusual because of the distribution and depth. We see footage of Matthew with these bruises on him on March 1st, 2006, being examined as the doctor continues that they did tests to rule out trauma. He was tested for vasculitis and poisoning and toxins were ruled out. He says that there was no conclusive diagnosis and several weeks later, the bruises were just gone. They never found out what the cause was. Now, I can't really talk about this until later, but there is a um, there's a theory that I read online that's kind of prevalent within the people that talk about this film. And this film is weirdly polarizing. Like some people fucking hate it. And yeah. some people say that it's the scariest movie they've ever seen. I wouldn't say hate. Hate I mean, it. Like, yeah. hate it. 
But um, I saw quite a few half star reviews on Letterboxd. Yeah. Really? yeah. A lot of people cite this scene as evidence of this theory that I will get into later that I can't get into yet. But I would just like to point to the timestamp. It is March. And Alice, the tragedy happened in December. Okay. So to me, the evidence that they point to here, it just does not fit with the timeline. Yeah. And you and I talked about this a little bit this morning off mic where we were kind of discussing these ideas. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for me, I still want to know what this means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like we get there. No, that's my issue with it is it's it is not explained. Uh huh. The bruises? No, not at all. Yeah. While a few men lay out animal hides outside, Steve Wilkie, played by Glenn Luck, is interviewed. He's Matthew's best friend and says that he stays the night at his house a few times a week. They started a band together and they usually play music at Steve's house. We see the boys sitting in Steve's garage and practicing. He says that Matthew has gotten quieter, but he was always quiet, so it wasn't alarming to him. He does say that he heard about June going into people's houses, but Matthew never wanted to talk about it, so he didn't ask about it. This, again, it made me laugh a little bit because why the fuck would Matthew want to talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> in what universe? Hey, well, I hear your mom's breaking and entering well, into no. <laughs> What's up with your fucking mom? Well, like, yeah, man, she loves stealing. It's <laughs> <laughs> a real she problem. She just loves it. Maybe if he's not talking to his parents about what's bothering him, maybe he'll talk to his friends about it. But it does. But it, it is like you said, if I'm ashamed of that or if I feel bad about it, I don't want to talk about it. No, let's dude. not bring no. out my mom breaking into people's houses, please. <laughs> and it's even worse because he's like, everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. We see Matthew messing with film and Leith says that he always knew that Matthew was into photography, but he was starting to pursue it with more passion. Armed with his camera, Matthew snaps photos. We cut to Clive Roy Best, played by Simon Wilton, of Best Photography. He says that he was more than willing to help Matthew out, and he calls Matthew such a great asset that he ended up giving him a job. We see some of Matthew's photos, a lonely street light shining its light into the dark sky, an empty road, a residential street, blurred animal carcasses hung upside down, and a mirror selfie. I'm assuming that Steve works at some kind of animal slaughterhouse or something. Oh, yeah. Because they were like throwing hides and shit. And mm-hmm. he's, I mean, because I was like, where do those animals come from? <laughs> but that would be it, right? Where they come from. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the picture he took. Have you heard of evolution? <laughs> 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 Moving on. <laughs> the interviewer asks Matthew about the photos he's been taking in the backyard. Matthew says he's been taking the same photo with the same composition in his backyard every three months for the last four years. He calls it a little project for himself since they moved there. We see a snapshot of these photos, the lighting and seasons changing. April 28th, 2005, July 28th, 2005, October 28th, 2005. The interviewer asks him what was different about the April 28th photograph. Matthew says that it's the same shot as always, but it looks like Alice is standing by the fence. We refer back to that photo and zoom in on exactly what Matthew said. Impossibly, Alice is standing straight and still in front of the fence. The interviewer asks what the reaction to this was, and Matthew admits that the mood wasn't good, but it was better than before. It gave them something to focus on. So we're back to ghost. Mm, Yeah. yeah, Interesting. This it was chilling. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, she's right in the middle of the photograph. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, and it gets even worse later as far as the feeling you get with all of these zooms. Yeah. But this one, I I think that it's the beginning of that terrifying process. Mm -hmm. Yes. I will also point out that slow zoom, as unsettling as it is, you absolutely, and Stephen Cognetti cited it himself, you see the influence of Lake Mungo on Hell House LLC. Yes, I was thinking that when we got the text at the beginning. And I know that's like a familiar... um, Blair Witch. Yeah, very Mm -hmm. familiar. But the way that it was done and kind of like showing a piece and then going to that, I was like, I maybe because we just did Hell House 2, uh-huh. but I was like, this is very much yeah. reminding me. One thing I will say though about this film is like, I, I see the photo and then they zoom in and I'm like, oh my God, that's Alice Palmer. But with Hell House, it's like, there's a fucking clown right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I already saw yeah, it. You don't have to zoom. There's at, least, there's at least two clowns in this photograph, I think. <laughs> And they're like, no, look yeah, at no, it. No, it's a clown. <laughs> I swear to God. Aren't they and, holding one of their friends? Yeah. <laughs> and nobody saw it before. <laughs> this isn't a prom photo with yeah. a clown. <laughs> I swear to God. Hey, I love those movies, though. I don't even care. Yeah. They're all right. <laughs> we next interview Bob Smeet, played by Charles Armitage, after he walks his dog. He says that the photos of the dam were taken on April 3rd and developed on the 4th. He looked at them on the 5th and was happy with what he saw as it pertained to the water levels. But it wasn't until later that his wife brought his attention to something in one of the photos. We zoom in on this one like we did the first. Again, a very grainy someone who might just be Alice standing there with dark hair and a sweater. So mystery confirmed. Yes. Uh, our ghosts. Uh, g- g- <laughs> ghosts. Uh, yeah, what, which is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I will say, I mean, these Zooms, it's like, oh, there's someone at the lake. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, you know, it doesn't, It it's again, it's part of the things with documentaries where a lot of times, and this to me is kind of the thesis of the film in some ways, is you see what you want to see. Yes, yeah. yeah. And whatever is represented and the way the documentaries present information, mm-hmm. they want you to take away it's this. It's very, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's usually quite biased. But yeah, you're right. It's just like Cole said in The Sixth Sense. They only see what they want to see. Uh, yes. So this movie's <laughs> like demons. Yeah. <laughs> Old boy, curb your enthusiasm, and The Sixth Sense. So yeah. are we the ghosts? Yeah. Or are they the ghosts? That, that's or a twist. That, yeah. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> June says that she didn't know what to make of it. It was unsettling and discomforting because it really did look like Alice and it helped her to convince herself that Alice was still alive. We pan over that photo of Alice in the backyard and Russell says that he couldn't rationally explain what was being shown in the photos. But the difference between him and June was that he saw Alice's body. He didn't think that she was still alive. In fact, he knew that she wasn't. June says that she was convinced that Russell had made a mistake. We look upon Alice's bloated and blue face again. And June says that Russell had even said that the body didn't look like anyone anymore. Russell even says that June was so convinced he'd made a mistake that he started to believe it himself. He wondered if he'd made his mind up that it was Alice before he'd even seen her. The circumstances were so strong that he just decided it was her. I feel like we are kind of glossing over the fact that Russell had a vision of her. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Before this happened. Yeah, he so. Yeah. If you see her outside the house, you see her in the house. We've Mm -hmm. got something going on. 
It is very sad, though. Oh, him, of course. Like, Incredibly. Uh, him second-guessing him is like, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I was just... It's it's hurting. Yes, it's very painful. And when you hear from your wife her worries, yeah, you're like, we got to do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and I mean, even when you're faced with something like that and the only evidence that you have is yourself and what you're sure that you saw at a time of intense stress. And, you know, mm-hmm. I would definitely be like, maybe, maybe it wasn't. Yeah. You know, it's so easy to second guess yourself. What was that story? Bobby Dunbar, where mm-hmm. that kid went missing and then everybody's like, Oh, this is your kid. And she's like, maybe yeah. it is my oh kid. Oh my God. Because dude, uh, there was a lot more. Oh to it. my yeah. God. That's, that's one of the most wild <laughs> yes. unsolved stories in the world. But, um, but anyway, <laughs> we can talk about that at another time. <laughs> Podmortem unsolved. Yeah. <laughs> But on the news, Genevieve Trudeau reports that three months after Alice's funeral, her parents had requested that the body be exhumed due to the contention about the body's true identity. Sergeant Druin explains that Russell and June wanted a DNA test to be absolutely sure that it was Alice. As a backhoe digs up the dirt of a grave, Russell's voice explains that she was exhumed in front of the funeral directors, Dr. Slatter, and a representative from the coroner's office. They then took the body to the base hospital to take DNA samples, and her body stayed there until the results. I have to say, and I understand it's probably to sign off on things to get the process moving, Mm -hmm. it feels so archaic for this to be the method of identification instead of DNA analysis for them to say, is this and for having to force a relative to come in and say, yes, that's them. That's fucking wild to me. I've never, uh, that's just the way I've always heard. So I never really thought about that. It feels 18, 1900s, but you know what? It's, you know, yeah. With labs as backed up as they are true and the expense of that i mean i guess that's a way to circumvent it if it's i mean i don't know but that's true it is but i'm surprised that we don't hear more stories of false identification yeah yeah because i'm sure they're there we just don't don't hear about them Mm -hmm. yeah but whenever they were like and we exhumed the body to do this dna test i'm like so you were not like that is staggering to me yeah, I didn't think about that, but yeah, why why wouldn't you do that mm-hmm. at Just the time? Part of the process, First, yeah. yeah. Especially as kind of disfigured, depending yeah. on certain circumstances, yeah. it's like how can I know? Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't know, man. I guess at that point they would, but yeah, that's a really good point. We see the coffin being pulled from the ground on June sixth, two thousand six. June says that they got a copy of the coroner's preliminary report a few days later, and it confirmed Alice's identity. Russell says that it wasn't until they got the results that he realized how much he'd really hoped that he'd made a mistake. He wanted so badly for it to have been a mistake. Heartbreakingly, he says that he hoped for it to have been anyone except for Alice. I, my note that I wrote here, it's, it's, not funny it's funny and i don't know what <laughs> Look, the fuck? here's the thing i i wrote so what the h is going on and then parentheses i said it's alice yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i this is where <laughs> confusion does start to set in yeah and you do start to lean more towards this haunted story right yeah, this i was ghost story i was yeah, gonna yeah. say because for me it's like oh her ghost yes it's her yeah. ghost clearly 
We get a short montage of pictures of Alice, very young, posing alone and with Matthew. We get a video of her laughing with her family, her father chasing her out of the kitchen with a lobster, videos of her dancing. Then we abruptly cut to the eerie photo of her in the Palmer's backyard. So during these scenes, there is something that was pointed out to me thanks to, and I started taking Nay's uh, advice and looking on Reddit or something. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful. Uh, Yeah, a rabbit hole. Uh, but it is absolutely true and absolutely there. But when the scene starts, when the father brings in the lobster, mm-hmm. there is, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. There's a woman behind the father wearing a Nazi uniform. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that until you came over this morning and you like paused it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, because I know you try to do it because we watched it on Tubi, but mm-hmm. when you pause it, the screen it's gets too dark. dark. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you like, pulled it up on Shutter. Yeah. So thank you, Shutter, for yeah. Yeah, <laughs> coming in with that, with the light screen. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're still open. Yeah. Things. <laughs> you can still call us or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But she is there. Yeah. And even when the scene continues and he kind of, you know, frightens her jokingly out of the room, uh-huh. you see this woman still in the back. Yeah. And we were like, maybe it's not. Maybe it's the the cop. Right. The chief. But, yeah, yeah. But she wouldn't be there because the tragedy hasn't happened yet. No. Right. And you Unless see an armband. No, we do. Oh, yeah. Well, then it's not. <laughs> yeah. I'm just. <laughs> not anyway. I'm so confused. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I've got nothing. And this is why I want the director to do more interviews. Yeah. <laughs> please. Yeah. Where are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> June says that they reburied Alice two days later on June 7th, but they still didn't know who or what was in the photos. After scenic shots and an eerie view of the darkened Palmer home, we're in the interview with Matthew again. He says that he was continuing to hear noises in the hallway, so he decided to set up his camera to see if he could see anything. Text on screen alerts us that we're about to view this footage, taken on June 13th, 2006. The footage is grayish and a bit grainy, but it is undeniable that someone walks out into the hallway, a full-bodied person. They walk from the living room across the hall into the front door. We zoom on this grainy figure before we hear the voice of Helen Bath, played by herself, introducing psychic Ray Kimini, played by Steve Jodrell. This footage, I was asking myself, what more proof do you need? Literally. Mm-hmm. You have... A full-bodied apparition or an FBA. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> these are, and I, I did the hourglass. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I just, I don't, this is where the misdirection and the expertise in recontextualizing footage, mm-hmm. this is where this film becomes so surprising and so incredible. Yeah. As far as what they're showing you. Mm-hmm. And it really does say a lot about documentary film. Yes. Yeah. We see Helen and Ray at the radio station taking calls for Ray from listeners. June says that she decided to give Ray Kemeny a call for advice. She had heard him on the radio for years, but he was a polarizing figure with some people thinking he was real and some not being as convinced. We briefly see him taking a call from a woman named Annie, played by Tammy McCarthy. She says that she just wants a general reading, but Ray senses that she also wants a medical one. In an interview with him, he gives his backstory, his Hungarian birth, his move to Australia when he was very young, and his 15-year-old daughter who lives in South Australia with her mother. 
he reveals that his real name was Jolt, but that he changed it to Ray because it's a more trustworthy name for Australia's psychic of choice. Keep Jolt. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Z and an S. That's yeah. rare. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a real psychic. Yeah. Yeah. He says that about a third of his clients reach out to him because of death, and he's happy to give them the consolation that death is not the end. What happens after death is up for grabs. Back on the radio, he tells Annie that someone that she hasn't seen in a long time is going to come back into her life and be a great comfort to her. He asks if anyone comes to mind, and she says yes. He warns her that there will be obstacles, but the person coming back to her will make a big difference and be of great solace. Annie thanks him tearfully before they end the call, and June listens to this as she cooks in her kitchen. I just want to say Death is Not the End made me think of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds cover of the Bob Dylan song Death is Not the End, <laughs> featuring PJ Harvey, Blixa Bargeld, uh, Shane McGowan, Kylie McNogue, and uh, a lot of people. Anyway, okay, it's good, a great, good. great track. Listen to it tonight. Okay. But here's the, th- <laughs> here's the thing. Finish this first. I did read, please. I did read that this scene was actually done in one take between the two actors, the person playing Ray, the person playing Annie. Uh-huh. It was 20 minutes long, if I'm not mistaken. Damn. And they were just told to play out how it would go (laughs) if she calls in to this radio psychic with a query. Yeah. And they just played it out and wherever it went is wherever it went. Yeah. This is the take that's in the film. And they just spliced it up. So they're just yes anding each other for 20 minutes. Yeah. That's amazing. But it works though. It does. Because you can... You can see, let them have a real conversation is like yeah. right here is where they stopped acting and they were just talking or whatever. Yeah. Use this, this and that. And I will say that the thing about Ray is that I feel his genuine want to help. Yes. Yeah. So you there's there's nothing. There's a lot of psychics in movies where it's like, oh, they're kind of you shady. Know, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah, that's my note. Oh, finally, the, the family found some help. Yes. Yeah. Because good Lord, have we watched them suffer. Yes. In a motel room, Ray sets up a camera. He tells the interviewer that where he's from, when someone dies, they cover all the mirrors to keep the dead from finding their way back. Things like that make a difference, he says. All right. I believe him. That's Yeah. yeah, That's fine. Yeah. Isn't that what they talked about in The Nun? Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. This film's better. Yeah. No, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I like the way he no, tells no. it. Let's be very clear. We didn't even need the statement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, you didn't we even knew. need to bring yeah. it up. Everybody knows. Yeah. So we know. <laughs> when someone knocks on the door and he opens it, it's Annie. They sit at a table with the camera pointed toward them, and he holds Annie's hands as she sobs. He gently tells her that she is going to die, but it will only be the start of something else. She continues to cry and he consoles her. What? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to see you too. What'd you say before that? Yeah, you didn't even make me coffee. Like, yeah. that's, that's a lot. <laughs> June says that she immediately liked Ray, even though he wasn't what she expected. She says that there is nothing fake about him. The Ray June consultation tape taken on June 15th, 2006 begins. They sit in front of the camera and Ray instructs June to close her eyes. He says in his interview that he usually records his sessions so that the clients can watch them later, especially when they're being hypnotized or put into a trance. He keeps a copy for himself and gives another one to them. And we scan over a mountain of these tapes. 
Ray says that it's better to be safe than sorry. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. Back on the tape, Ray tells a hypnotized June that she's standing outside her house and to tell him what she sees. She describes her white house and says that she's walking toward the front door. We see this before going back to the session where Ray tells her to go inside and tell him what she sees and where she is. He asks for a guided tour. We see the inside of the Palmer home. June says that she's walking down the hallway toward Alice's room. We glide with her down the hall as she says that she sees Alice's shoes outside of her room. Ray asks what that means, and June takes a moment before replying that Alice would always leave her sneakers outside of her room. Ray instructs her to open the door to Alice's room. Before she does, he asks if she feels safe enough to do this. When June says yes, he tells her to open the door. We enter Alice's room with June. It is still neat and just as it was left before. We slowly scan the room and we hear June say a soft, oh. Ray asks if she can see something and to tell him what it is. June says that Alice is sitting in the wicker chair at the end of her bed. We see this chair, but we see it empty. In the session, June opens her eyes and tells Ray that Alice looks sad. So I, I was kind of looking and I was like, okay, so did I miss something? Because, yeah, we don't see her. Mm-mm. So I'm like, is this... Is it not a ghost story anymore? What, what? Well, well, it's documentary. Is... Yeah, the documentary obviously can't get that. Yeah, but so I they're just shooting. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that that lends to the tone that they're creating here, right? Where we even think in docu- documentary B roll, yeah, we might see something. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, because when she says the shoes are outside the room, I was like, no, they're not. But yeah. I'm like, oh, we're not in her yeah. mind. Yeah. This isn't that kind of movie. <laughs> this isn't that scene from Insidious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Russell says that he met Ray when June brought him home for dinner after her first session. He says that he's indifferent to psychics, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wants them coming over for dinner either. It's like, damn, dude. Yeah. What's wrong with. So I don't don't think you're indifferent. Yeah. Yeah. He just didn't want to upset June by putting up a fight. We see Ray sitting down with the Palmers in their kitchen and Russell concedes that Ray was pleasant and nice and not spooky at all. In his interview, Ray says that about a week later, he proposed holding a seance. June was on board right away, but Russell flat out refused. Matthew had to convince him. The interviewer asks Matthew, seated with his parents on a couch, how he felt about the seance. Matthew says that at the time, he was interested and curious, but that his dad wasn't thrilled about the idea. He says that he thought it would be interesting and that he should film it. Did that... Was it just me or did it feel a little weird for the dad to immediately just be like, no, it's like, but isn't this some kind of help? If you met him and he was nice at dinner and everything was fine. In my mind, I think that he's worried about June. And I think that he, if he already, whether he said he's indifferent or not, the fact that you're like, I don't really want one coming over to dinner, but yeah. he might think that in the state that they're in, somebody could easily, and that's what, a lot of them do yeah. could easily swoop in and take advantage. Well, uh, not to go back to Insidious, but Elise was very nice. And then the second that she's like, here's how I can help. Josh is like, get the fuck out. He did. Yeah. You know, it, but I mean, maybe Russell yeah. is an astral projector. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> he doesn't want to go back. Wow. Well, too familiar <laughs> for me. <laughs> we get text that alerts us to Matthew's video footage taken June 20th, 2006. They were holding a seance and your girl was turning 17. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, meanwhile. <laughs> <laughs> in San Angelo, Texas. Yes. <laughs> Filmed with the family video camera, the quality isn't great, but we see that the Palmers are sitting at a table with Ray, heads bowed and holding hands. Ray says that he feels a strong presence in the house, but June says that they all felt like the seance was a failure. Ray didn't feel any signs or come up with anything substantial, so after about an hour, they stopped. It wasn't until the next day when Matthew was reviewing the footage that he found an image of Alice. We see the footage again, the family seated at the table with Ray conducting the seance, but we zoom in on the hallway to the far right of the screen. Undeniably, a figure that very much looks like Alice looks on from the shadowed corner. It's always those low quality videos, huh? Yeah. Always. Yeah. But it looks good. It does. And the, the grain sells it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Russell says that this footage was completely different than the footage from the hallway. Its detail made it less ambiguous and impossible to dismiss as a coincidence of shadows. I, if the hallway video he's talking about is the one where a person fucking walks by, then I, I'm sorry, Russell. <laughs> that one is undeniable. That yeah. is somebody walking through. Yeah. And again, you saw Alice already. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Damn. But we see the face of the figure closely. The footage making shadows dance subtly around it as Russell admits that there was something inexplicable in their house. It is now beyond a doubt. I have to say, whenever it comes to these Zooms, I squirm, first of all. Yes. Yeah. And we hold on them for so long that it comes to a point that I'm like, okay, we can, uh, we it's can like, go It's to uncomfortable. The, yeah, we've seen enough. <laughs> yeah. But I think- We get it. <laughs> you got a ghost in your house. But it, it it's so masterfully done. Yeah. yeah. I love every time we see Ghost Alice. Yeah. Every time that that's the one thing again. And I know I said it earlier about this movie, the, the effects and the ghosts. The go but, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the ghosts. <laughs> but damn, it looks creepy. And it, and of course, it's, you know, found footage or, you know, but it it looks really, really good. Something wild that the cinematographer said in that blog there are over 60 visual effects shot and shots in this film. Really? And he said, you will never guess where or when. No. no. And I don't know if this could be one. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anything. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. In his interview, Ray says that this was unfamiliar territory for him, and he was concerned. He'd never seen a ghost before. That shocked me a little. Yeah. I mean, at least he's honest and maybe he's sensed things, but he's never seen it. Yeah. Okay. And maybe a, maybe speaking with a spirit is different yeah. than an FBA. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> 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 an FBA. After a series of dark and surreal shots of Ararat and the Palmer home at night, Russell says that Matthew got Ray to help him set up three cameras around the home that would continue recording 24 hours a day. 
Georgie says that there was some speculation about Ray and what he was doing there. She sums it up that when people don't know what's going on, it leads to talk and speculation. Sergeant Druin even says that she'd heard rumors through July of video footage of an apparition in the Palmer house, but she was skeptical. When the interviewer asks about her opinions on Ray, she replies that she was also very skeptical. I will say she is giving herself away. Absolutely. Yeah. She might as well be, what about Ray? Oh, that piece of shit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, that's her vibe. Yeah. Yeah. As for Ray, he acknowledges that he's seen as a Rasputin figure doctoring up the photos of Alice to steal the Palmer's money. On July 20th, 2006, home video shows June carrying in a cake for Matthew on his birthday. They sing to him and he blows out the candles. Ray says that Matthew in particular was struggling. He thought he could help just by being there for him, but his main motivation was still professional because something was happening in the house and he wanted to figure out what it was. Footage from the Palmer home cycles through. Hallway cam A and hallway cam B on June 21st, 2006. Alice's bedroom on July 2nd. But on Alice's bedroom cam on July 3rd at 3.10 a.m., we zoom in on her mirror. Alice's figure stares back at us from the foot of her bed, plain as day. On hallway camera B on July 15th at 2.24 a.m., a reflection is caught in the mirror of the table. When asked what he thought about these images, Russell admits that they were gobsmacked, but before they could even process them fully, the Withers video came out. And I have to say, before we get to the Withers video, they're mm -hmm. using our expectations against ourselves yeah. with the three o'clock hour. Oh, yeah. yeah. So again, it's yeah. very, very intelligently crafted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it looks like Alice was standing alone. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Godsmacked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> God God smash. They were God smash. Right. Yeah. I thought I thought you were referencing June's nightmare. No. <laughs> no, that's why I said yes. Yeah. Very, very much. What? Yeah, the Scorpion yeah. King soundtrack or whatever. Oh, not Scorpion King. <laughs> we cut to the Withers video, taken April third, two thousand six. Douglas and Kathy Withers, played by Michael Ormond Robinson and Natasha Herbert, spend a day at the dam. Douglas cautioning his wife to be careful with the camera as she clumsily takes it from him. June's voiceover says that this video was taken the same day as the Bob Smeet photo. The camera is shaky and unfocused as Catherine wields it. But in an interview with Douglas and Kathy, Douglas says that it wasn't until a couple months later in July that they were looking over the footage. They pull it up on their computer and they show a figure in the background that they later identified as Bob Smeet. This interested them because they realized this was the same day that Bob captured the image of the figure that everyone was talking about. That would be exciting. Yeah. yeah. I would be pouring over every second. Oh, yeah. This is reminding me a lot. I think it's just human curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The way that we have to explain or find reasons for everything. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of obviously like the Bigfoot footage. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, you ever see that like astronaut that was floating over that baby? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a wild yeah. <laughs> You'll know. <laughs> I'll show you. It was one of those things where it was like, we, nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> there were no flights from Cape, Cape Canaveral yeah. on this day or whatever. So, but it makes me think of just every, you know, 
Um, the Loch Ness monster. Uh, yeah, that astronaut. I said yeah, the, <laughs> the affirmation <laughs> astronaut and then baby featuring yeah. baby. But it's just featuring <laughs> the baby was real. The astronaut people weren't. That's what they weren't so sure about. But the thing is, is that this is just kind of human nature mm-hmm. for sure. And I think that they really explore this in a very interesting way definitely yeah. but wouldn't you want to be like maybe we caught something too of course yes. i know that that's not really how they're looking at it because i don't think they you know subscribe but i would i'd be like let's let's look yeah yeah we can probably help mm-hmm. yeah so they went through all of their footage to see if they had caught one of the figure as well they did end up finding a figure in the background of their footage but douglas was able to zoom way in What looked in Bob Smeet's photo to be a woman matching Alice's description was very clearly neither a woman nor Alice in the Withers video. The footage isn't sharp from being zoomed in, but the figure is clearly Matthew Palmer. The interviewer asks the couple if they believe in ghosts and they both laugh and say that they do not. So we're back to a murder mystery. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I was like, Hold the fucking phone. Yeah. The misdirection of this thing. Yeah. Because now it, it's it's making <laughs> it's honestly but then again, I mean it, it's it's doing exactly what it's wanting to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Because you were buying in. Yeah. Oh yeah. You were a part of this supernatural mystery. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you're realizing you're like, no, this is just the most tragic story of a family trying to wrap their mind around this grief. Something Mm -hmm. horrible, yeah. And so it's changing. When I said the narrative just shifts so constantly. And it doesn't stop. No. At the dam, Matthew shows us where he was when the Bob Smeet photo was taken. He was wearing Alice's jacket when he saw Bob up on the hill. He didn't want to be in the photos that were being taken, so he walked off, but he didn't see that he was walking right into where the Withers were filming. Once he was exposed in the Withers video, Matthew says that Russell approached him and asked if he was behind anything else that had been caught. Not wanting to lie to his father, Matthew admitted the truth. We see the creepy footage of Alice walking across the hallway as Matthew admits to faking it. He faked the footage of Alice in the hallway. He faked Alice's reflection in the mirror of her bedroom. He faked the April 28th photo in the backyard. He even faked Alice's image in the seance photo. What about the astronaut and the baby? He faked that. (laughs) (laughs) All I'm going to say is, again, this it, it almost makes you feel you're like, I bought into that. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. And you let me. This documentary yeah. let me buy into that. No, they yeah. Did. That's my whole thing. Turn it off. Burn your scripts. The movie's over. I, I, <laughs> that's it. I like, was yeah. reading a lot of people on Reddit were saying that at this moment, they didn't trust the film anymore. And it, there was no coming back from this, that they felt betrayed, like they'd been lied to. But I think, again, even if this were an actual documentary, you're taking us on the journey that this family went through. Yeah. Not Matthew, obviously, yeah. but yeah. this sense of oh my god like we found oh no we didn't like everyone would feel betrayed yeah we feel betrayed Mm -hmm. that i i think that is on purpose and i will a lot of people got really mad and i i mean i i feel like it's 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 misdirection but it's also when you learn the reasoning behind it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is the depths of this tragedy of course yeah and so i feel like everything you know i i wouldn't i did feel like i was like oh 
and I, you feel like you're changing the subgenre of the film you're watching. Right. For sure. That's what John Paul keeps going. Now it's a ghost. Now yeah. it's a murder. Yeah. Now, you know, it's 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 a lot. Mm-hmm. But he shows us how he did it. He took two photos, one of Alice and one of the backyard, and composited them. In an interview, he says that his mother really wanted to exhume Alice's body because she was sure that Russell had misidentified her. He knew that without evidence, this wouldn't happen. So he created the evidence. We see a video of Alice talking and laughing as she stands in front of the fireplace. He played the video on the TV in the living room and angled the hallway mirror to capture it. Her ghostly reflection was really just a mirror of the home video playing on the TV. He did the same thing in the bedroom and in the kitchen. It was all just Alice on the TV reflected into a mirror. He tries to make it clear that he wasn't trying to trick anyone. He just felt like something was better than nothing. The interviewer asks if Matthew thinks what he did ultimately made it worse for his mother. And after a moment of finding his words, Matthew has to admit that he did make it harder for her. But that wasn't his intention. In his own way, he was trying to help his mother. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's very sad that that's the result. I do feel maybe he could have said to them if this is the way and we're trying to convince his father Mm -hmm. tell your mother yeah but your your mom's not gonna fucking co-sign on that i feel (laughs) my thing is like yeah you clearly got carried away because she's been exhumed she's been identified she's been reburied you're still doing this yeah but then i think at some point it becomes more you're you're keeping alice here yeah yeah and so it's comforting in a strange way it's just I, it's such a slippery slope that now you yeah. can't you can't stop yeah and it's just spiraled and spiraled but june tells the interviewer that she doesn't understand her son's reasons she says that she isn't saying that she doesn't believe matthew but that she doesn't think he even fully understands why he did what he did we see matthew frozen in gray and grainy footage It cuts to Russell, who says that when the hoax was exposed, people wanted to do stories about what happened. He says that they had no idea how to handle this. They wanted to protect their son, themselves, and their daughter's memory, and they just had no idea how to navigate something so personal that was becoming so public. Georgie says that the Palmers weren't coping well at this point and that it was a very dark time. Russell marks it as the end of hope for everyone, but especially for June. We see photos of June smiling with her children, and Russell says that she just wasn't ready to let go. The hoax was letting her hold on to it just a little bit longer. We see June sitting alone in the darkness of the kitchen, writing on a notepad under a small light. Russell says that she was devastated. After slow footage of a video of Alice, we cut to Frederick, who describes Alice as an interesting girl. He does mention, though, that he found it strange that she didn't get along with June very well, considering how much alike the two were. I think that as well is a seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's something that'll come up later that is quite a surprise. Mm-hmm. One thing I did forget to mention is the fact of kind of being implicit watching this documentary unfold. You feel kind of guilty in a way of taking part in this spectacle. Yeah. Because the giddiness of these ghost photos, you're like, this is a person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, come back down to earth. Exactly. And these moments, whenever it becomes, it's like, oh, Matthew staged these. Yeah. You feel that impact even more because you're like, okay, this is back to. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
It's like at the end of Don't Fuck With Cats when they're like, and people like you, and I'm like, hey, yo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> thumbs down, Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold up a mirror to me. Yeah. It's, not what, it's not what I'm here I for. I didn't fucking do this. <laughs> <laughs> also, imagine having a daughter just like you. Yeah. Interesting, man. <laughs> <laughs> more and more alike every day. <laughs> <laughs> Georgie corroborates this in another interview saying that Alice took a lot after June but the other things became clear after Alice passed the two also shared a sense of privacy she says that June keeps a lot to herself and it was clear now that Alice was doing the same thing they shared that sense of their personal private life that they could either share or not share Iris shares a photo of a very small Alice bathing in a deep sink, and she says that a mother always has doubts that they're not doing enough or doing the right thing. She admits that she partly blames herself because that's where they got it from. Maybe it came from her mother as well, but she's never been able to completely give herself to June, and she thinks that June is that way too, unable to completely give herself to Alice. We see a photo of Iris and June, then of the three of them, then a last one of June and Alice. Over home videos, June says that she really does hope Alice understood how much she loved her because she did hold something back as Alice grew older. She says that it's the saddest thing to think that she maybe didn't know. The home video freezes and it fades to black. This is like, I can we please get scary again? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, this is devastating. Yeah. We come back up on Matthew recording himself in the car. Tex tells us that this is from Ray and Matthew's road trip, August 19th, 2006 to August 22nd, 2006. June says that Ray suggested that Matthew come with him on one of his tours where he was doing consultations and Matthew was eager to. We see Matthew's footage of traveling with Ray and Ray meeting to consult people. Matthew says that while he was gone, he realized how much he missed his sister and that he'd never be able to talk with her again. He understands that that's why most people go to see Ray. They want to make contact with someone they've lost. And so did he. This, in a way, made him one of Ray's clients, too. We see a short series of videos of the siblings being siblings, teasing each other and laughing. But in one, Matthew comes into Alice's room as she writes in her journal and she stands up, coming toward him and yelling at him to get out. So this is... Such a tragic moment in the movie mm -hmm. because you realize that Russell is simply remembering yeah. this video that he saw. Yeah. And he is reliving it in his mind as something that is happening now. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when we're talking about the cycle, nonlinear yes. cycle mm -hmm. of grief, it's just, you know, this film at points cannot get any sadder. No, yeah. it really can't. Yeah. But suddenly we're back in the Palmer home where the cameras are still set up to capture something. Matthew says that he left them that way when he went on tour with Ray because he really was convinced that there was something in their house. He says that since he and Ray were away, they couldn't change the tapes over. When they got back on August 22nd, they checked them. And in the first one, there is straight up someone standing in his parents' bedroom. June says that she and Russell were the only ones in the house when these were recorded. Matthew was not there to manipulate them. A distorted face in the footage becomes clear and reveals itself to be Alice. 
June says that now it was clear that there was a ghost in their house. Alice's ghost. These images are even clearer than the hoax. Yeah. Yes. And we yeah. can stop zooming in. I'm scared. Please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the ghosts are back. All right. I'm, I'm a little happier. Thank you. Though, Thank uh, you. Because well, you're right. It It's sad. It's, it's so sad. And you do feel what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. So the ghosts are kind of a break. Oh, in a it way. Yeah. 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 I mean, we talk about these movies that make us like horror movies that make you cry. Train to Busan immediately yeah. comes to mind. But it's not, you're not seeping in it throughout. Yeah. Like it's a gut punch. This is, you are sitting, you're sitting in it. Mm -hmm. You're bathing in it. Yeah. We cut to the interviewer asking Kim if she believes in ghosts. She says that she didn't used to, but she does acknowledge that it's a difficult thing to prove or disprove. Now she thinks that they might exist. Ray says that it's a scary world and that ghosts are everywhere. I was like, well, that's a different opinion. (laughs) He's like, there's one behind you right now. We're really showing all sides (laughs) in this documentary. Jason says, as we heard him say before, that he doesn't understand how it's helpful for someone dealing with loss to make up stories about ghosts. We see the image of Alice's face in the footage, and June says that it put a question mark over everything. She went back and reviewed all of the old footage after Alice's death. She reviewed Matthew's June 13th hallway video where the figure walked by. She realized something else in the image. Now, there is a moment that is the moment in this film, okay? Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. It's chilling. It's horrifying. Whatever. For me, this does not get enough credit. Because yeah. the first time I saw it, my fucking stomach sank, I was scared yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> genuinely scared well as and we'll learn more in just a second but as we're zooming in i was like no 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 no. yes please yeah. <laughs> but then i'm like who the fuck is yeah yeah because yeah. <laughs> they're clear as day yeah yes. but you can't tell if you're not paying attention yes mm-hmm. so when you do zoom in it's like oh, you're just right there yeah as matthew pretending to be alice walks across the hall, there is another figure squatted down low in Alice's room. We zoom and we see this clearly. June thought it was Alice at first, but then she recognized it to be their neighbor, Brett Tui. Him squatting Mm -hmm. in the background of footage that we've seen more than once. Yeah, It scared the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. And if you like... (laughs) (laughs) Hold, please. The screen goes completely black and white text reads, Alice is safe, September 2006. I don't know if Brett was like, oh, I just thought we all broke into each other's houses. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we did in the neighborhood. Yeah. Steal small things back. You stole my yeah, I was fucking waffle say. iron, I just, June. <laughs> That's not small. That's yeah. pretty small. <laughs> I'd noticed the waffle iron. Go. Literally, yeah. It would pen. take a while. A pen is small. When, but when's the last time we had chicken and waffles? Then we got to think about it. Then we were like, ooh, that sounds great tonight. Where's my waffle iron? <laughs> June. <laughs> June asks what this man was doing in her house, in her daughter's room, six months after she died. She walks into Alice's room and moves a big chair out of the way to reveal a false section of the wall. She reaches inside and takes out a locked safe. As she takes the contents out, including journals and a tape wrapped in a plastic bag, June says that once she found the safe, she knew why Brett had been there. He'd been looking for the tape. 
text on screen reads the Tui tape and we jump right in. Alice sits in front of a bed before it cuts and we see her lying casually on top of it. She's then making what appears to be muffled small talk with Marissa and Brett Tui, played by Tamara Donnellan and Scott Terrell. Brett fiddles with the positioning of the camera and they all laugh. Over a photo of Alice and Russell smiling with the Tuies, the face of the Tui children carefully blurred. June says that Alice began babysitting for them in 2002 and would continue for the next two and a half years. Their children were five and nine. We abruptly cut back to the Tui tape where Alice and the Tuies are engaging in a threesome. And remember, Alice died at 16. Yeah. I didn't remember this aspect of the film at all. No. No, not at all. The the neighbors and all this, that was not on my bingo card. No. I had no idea this shit was coming. So when that happened, when like it starts, I was like, oh, please, God, no. When like, the tape started and she was sitting there, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all this does as well is it proposes another theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That a lot of people believe. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. June says that it all just made her so sad. Russell holds the two he's complicit in Alice's death. He feels that if it weren't for them and what they'd done, Alice wouldn't have felt guilty and she would have come to them. She wouldn't have been isolated because of the secret. The interviewer asks how Russell feels about Brett now, and Russell, his jaw set in anger, answers that if Brett were around the corner, he'd probably throttle him. It cuts to Kylie Connor, Kate Hepnell, and Meredith Gerbich, played by Stephanie Capiron, Courtney Teray, and Kimberly Bumpstead, being interviewed by a pool. They all agree that Brett always seemed nice, and when they talked to him, he wasn't nasty or anything. We see home video footage from Matthew of the neighborhood teens hanging out at the Tui's pool on March 6, 2005. The girls say that they were very bewildered when they'd heard what happened. In the video, we see Jason standing by, pensively eating snacks while the other people swim and someone makes food on the grill. In the back on the porch, Alice talks with Brett. The girls all agree that they'd never imagined that Alice would be with someone like Brett. In the video footage, we freeze frame on them. In an interview with June and Russell, they're asked why Alice had the tape. Russell assumes that she had it because she didn't want the Tuies to have it. When the interviewer asks for clarification, Russell ventures that maybe she just didn't trust them anymore. We zoom in on Brett squatting and searching in Alice's room as Russell continues that they must have been so desperate to get that tape back. Ever since the news of her death broke, they had to have been in fear that the tape would be found. June says that she's just glad that Brett never found the tape. She's glad that he knows it's not over. I was wondering, too, because obviously he never found it if it was still there for June to find. Yeah. Is that what the sounds coming from Alice's room were? Oh. See, that's what I thought, In the too. windows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I thought he said the roof. Maybe he was looking on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the alien from Signs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't keep your secrets on the roof? I thought everybody did that. Be thorough. Yeah. <laughs> Sergeant Druin says that she was speaking a lot with the Palmers during this time, trying to locate the Tuies. They were confident that they'd be able to find them and level charges against them, but all their leads eventually dried up and the investigation stalled. Russell says that even if the Tuies were caught, they'd get a suspended sentence due to the video evidence making it seem like everything was consensual. And I did look up the age of consent in Australia because I was curious, and in some parts it's 17, but in some it is 16. Which 
you, but I don't know. I, I mean, legally, I don't know. Yeah. And I don't think I'm alone here in thinking that a lot of these laws should be looked at yeah. a little bit yeah. closer, mm-hmm. but um, that's not why we're here today. <laughs> um, the interviewer asks if Jason knew about Alice's involvement with Brett. He says that he didn't. No one did. And certainly not him because he wouldn't have been going out with her if he knew. Over photos of the couple together, Jason says that he thought they were good. Over zoomed-in footage of Marissa and Brett, June ponders her unanswered questions. When did it begin? Why was she involved with them? Was she in love with either of them? She says that she just doesn't know. And then it starts to feel like uh, we're, you know picking apart this girl's life yeah in a way that i it just it starts to feel very wrong Mm -hmm. yeah at this point six months after well i mean the (laughs) the documentary was careful to blur out the faces of the tui children as this should as as the should (laughs) as they should (laughs) but we didn't need to see the threesome dude no like like, you didn't need to you if that's what this is it's just now occurring to me that netflix wouldn't do that (laughs) (laughs) that's exploitative as shit dude that's what i'm saying when it like just the beginning you're like oh no mm-hmm. but then when they snapped to that i was like what oh the, that, no yeah that's what i'm saying i did not imagine that that's what we were gonna see next because in all honesty they could say and there was more on the tape yeah yeah uh we've had evidence of this yeah it is it is jarring mm-hmm. six months after alice's death the twoies sold their house and moved away Kim says that Alice kept secrets. She even kept the fact that she kept secrets a secret. She says that it changes the way you look at someone when you realize they can hide things like that from you. She thinks that maybe she knew one Alice and her mom knew another one. And there was a third one that maybe no one knew. I will say again, the, this concept of, um, I guess the underbelly of a town, Mm -hmm. a small town mystery, a missing girl Mm -hmm. again, twin peaks. All right. Oh, all right. I will say um, before we move on from the twoies that it is nauseating to me that they're having all these teens come and swim in their pool every summer if this is the people that they are. Yeah. But I'm just throwing it out there. I, okay. Yeah. I was a little confused about that. I didn't know if maybe that the other her boyfriend was uh-huh. that was their kid or if it was. No, our, their kids are five and nine. These are not oh, their that's friends. That's right. Because yeah. All right. No. That's fucking gross. Yeah. What? I and I'm sorry, but the one way to not be suspicious is to not sell all your things and move away six yeah, months later. No, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but yet another bomb is dropped when June looks through Alice's planner and finds a business card for Ray taped to the date July 12th, 2005. So my jaw dropped here. Yes. Yeah. And I will say again. June and Alice are more alike than they think. In the footage of their session, Ray asks why Alice has come to see him. She asks if he can interpret dreams. Again, her mom has very vivid dreams as well. Mm -hmm. He says that he can sometimes and asks how she feels when she wakes up from the dreams. Alice admits that they scare her a little bit. In his interview, Ray says that Alice came to see him about five months before she died. She'd called him after hearing him on the radio. In their session, just like he would months later with June, Ray instructs Alice to take a deep breath and close her eyes. As she does this, he tells her to imagine that she's standing outside her house. Looking a little skeptical, Alice does this. When she tells him that she can see it, he tells her to go inside the front door. 
He says to tell him what she sees and where she is. The interviewer asks why Ray didn't tell June that Alice had come to see him. But Ray didn't see it as lying to June. He saw it as honoring Alice's request for confidentiality. He felt that the situation was damned if you do and damned if you don't. I completely disagree, but I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why I disagree is because it's like we need to honor Alice's confidentiality. Yes, you can use the footage for your documentary. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I don't know about Ray. The cat's already on the back, man. But, I I mean, I I don't know how you're supposed to feel about this, especially if you're the Palmers. Yeah, I I think I'm safe to say we'd probably feel the same way. Betrayed. Oh, absolutely. It's, It's very... But and but I do I understand what he's saying, but I feel like there comes a certain point to where it's like, oh, now her parents are reaching out to me. Mm-hmm. I I need they need to see this. Well, yeah, you came into my home. Yeah, like Candace from Potomac. I served you a beverage. Yeah. <laughs> like, how are you? Uh, what? Well, and also, I mean, when you think about it, again, we're talking about somebody who's sixteen. Don't the parents have to to you know have a right to know of certain goings on with their children up to a certain age? It's like yeah. a, I mean, but, but a psychic. I mean, I well, don't know what, it, what that's is the not, confidentiality? It's not a doctor. I don't know. I don't think he means legally. I think he means like he was keeping her trust. Oh, so just personal? Yeah. yeah. Dude. <laughs> <Fuck> <laughs> they, <you. laughs> they pinky promise. Yeah, no. Tell them tonight. That's crazy, dude. I'm even more yeah, pissed. He's not a doctor. Oh, I'm even more I betrayed. I didn't think. <laughs> well, but they spit in each other's palm and then they, they shut yeah, yeah, you don't go back on that. Oh, no. We're washing our hands and you're telling me every goddamn detail of that meeting. Before you come into my home. That's what I'm saying. We got too close. Maybe yeah. the first session. Okay. I don't fully agree, but whatever. I get it. You don't share whatever. But we got too close. You took my son on tour. You were at my yeah. son's birthday party. Yeah, yeah. We, it's it's too much. But at what point? It's like I can't tell them now. I was I was at their son's birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> you tell them. Oh, I'm so yeah, mad at this guy. No, it's like yeah. when you get too far with somebody and you can't be like, "What was your name again?" It's just you. You can't anymore. You got to hope it comes it's up. It's just hey guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hey friend. Mulva. Yeah. <laughs> 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 in the session alice describes the house ray asks if she sees anything unusual or different and after contemplating for a moment alice says no in an interview with june and russell june says that she couldn't trust ray anymore after that whatever his reasons it felt like a betrayal to them as we said understandable Ray says that he just wanted to help the palmers and they wanted his help if they'd known he wouldn't have been able to do that He says that they all resented him for it. Matthew wouldn't even speak to him afterwards. And he feels like they blamed him for not being able to see her imminent passing. Matthew says that it's strange to him to look back that Ray would get so close to them. He thinks that Ray needed the Palmers just as much as they needed him. Ray reveals that Alice was very troubled and came to see him because she was upset. June reads from an entry in Alice's journal written on May 12th, 2005. I had a dream last night. I was cold and wet. I felt heavy, like I'd been drugged. And when I woke up, these sensations didn't go. I was feeling sick and confused and I was starting to get scared. I needed to see mom, to talk to her. 
I stumbled to her room and as I stood there at the bed watching them, I was overcome by this intense sadness. Then the sadness turned to fear. I just stood there, paralyzed with fear, and I realized that there was nothing they could do for me anymore. I've never felt so utterly alone. Everything felt wrong. My body, the way things looked. Then I realized that there was something wrong with me. I started to cry, standing there at the foot of their bed. June can't help but cry as she reads this to us. This performance from Rosie Trainer mm-hmm. is so remarkable and so heartbreaking. Yeah. I did learn in an interview, she had said that what they had done with this diary is they got an actual child to write oh, these words. <laughs> And so her seeing these words in that handwriting, yeah. she said it was over. That's oh, devastating. That's it. Bad. And it's this whole thing of her nightmare. Yeah. Yes. And the cinematographer had said in an interview that Anderson was trying to convey with this, this idea of this missed connection between the members of this family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That even in this subconscious way, they're reaching out to each other. Yeah. yeah. Through the spirit world, they're reaching out to each other. Yeah. But they're still missing each other. Yeah. And it's it's goes back to what they said about June's mom. Yeah. It's oh, just yeah. so it's cyclical. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's generational. But we see a shot of the figure standing next to Russell in June's bed before June continues to flip through the planner. Four days are marked with large pink letters, Lake Mungo. Just something very quickly about Lake Mungo. I'll have more later, but this is what I can tell you right now. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I read in Den of Geek that Lake Mungo, the oldest human remains on the Australian continent, over 40,000 years old. Holy Mm -hmm. shit. Were found in Lake Mungo. Damn. And so... It is this meaningful conversation about death, about the past, mm. the connection between all of these things. And it's just very fascinating to choose this location yeah. for what we're about to experience. Mm. All right. And I will have more later. Okay. Over lonely shots of the dried out lake, June says that Lake Mungo is in New South Wales. Alice went there on a school trip in 2005 from August 2nd to 5th. She had told them that she'd had a good time when she came home. It sticks out to June because they just bought her a cell phone the month before and she came home without it. She also didn't have her favorite bracelet and her watch. Other than that, she didn't talk about the trip too much. We cut to cell phone footage taken by Kim on August 5th, 2005. So the last night there. The video is shaky and it's hard to see much, but the girls in the group are giggling and laughing. Jason says that it was about a year later that Kim showed him the footage she'd taken at the lake. The interviewer asks why Jason made the decision to show the video to June. Jason says that it felt like it would be hiding something if he didn't show her. Yeah, why did it take this long for this girl to to show this video? Maybe she just couldn't. Maybe she just couldn't like but rewatch it because she's grieving. Well, then don't rewatch it. Just like here, look. You guys looked yeah. that over. Yeah. 
You're in the same boat as a psychic to me. Yeah, but I mean, no, no, no. I know. I was, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just so defensive of the Palmers. Yeah. Sorry. No, I, and, and I get that. But I feel like if the story, if what we think is Alice went to the dam and she drowned, that has nothing to do with Lake Mungo. There's no evidence on there. There's no nothing. So that's just a memory that I have with my friend that is gone now. And maybe I can't watch that right now. But, okay. But there are also subtle clues of some behavior. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, you know, just give him a break. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Kim, you're not in the same boat as <laughs> the doctor. You're on the pier. You're on, yeah, <laughs> but you're watching him go by. <laughs> we see more footage of the girls where they pose and drink and laugh loudly. June says that Jason told them about the footage. When she watched it, she saw that the other girls all looked so happy, but Alice looked forlorn. The footage freezes on Alice's face, and she is not enjoying herself like the rest of the group. June says that this made her feel like something had happened to Alice. Later that night in the video, the party has died down and the girls have spread out. But when they watched the footage, they were able to find Alice in the corner of a frame. She was burying something under a tree. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. It's not as if, you know, it was just this camping trip mm -hmm. with a group of friends. Why is Alice burying something at Lake Mungo? Yeah. That's a really good question. <laughs> but you're like, I'm going to sit on this for a year. Yeah. Yeah, but she didn't. I mean, I get what you're saying. You filmed it. She's in the corner. That's not what she was filming. It was just caught in the corner. You need no, to review She was every like, look, look at Alice. That's suspicious as fuck. <laughs> like, what's she doing? Yeah. yeah but anyway, yeah. Lake Mungo. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you go and talk to your friend? Like, hey, what are you doing over there? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, some kids aren't as observant to say. Yeah, they no, weren't even yeah. looking at her. And that's like yeah, a, rec they, that's no, a recurring you're right, thing. They weren't. It is. You see what you want to see. Yeah. Yeah. In an interview, Kim is asked if she would have known what happened to Alice that night. Kim says that all she knew was that Alice had lost her phone and she was very upset. It was clear that she was upset, but it wasn't clear why. And Alice wouldn't tell her anything. Kim says that she didn't take it seriously. They had all been having a good time and she thought that Alice had just gotten upset. We see Alice walking alone away from the group. June says that it's obvious that something was distressing Alice and they just wanted to find out what that was. It fades to black and text on screen reads Lake Mungo, February 2007. The Palmers pull up and go into a house they'll be staying in on the lake. Russell says that from the video, they could tell that Alice had buried something and they had a vague idea of where that tree was. He says that he didn't want to go down there during the day and be caught digging where the tourists were, so they decided to go at scary-ass night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. These tourists can mind their own fucking business. I'm not doing this at night. But, I mean, honestly, I was thinking about it because I was like, okay, why would you go back at night? Mm -hmm. But if they see you digging and you can't find it, guess what? What were they digging for now once okay. they leave? I'm going to go dig around that spot. All right. Yeah, but, I mean, it's not, it's I'm not scared. like... It's <laughs> not the gold <laughs> Rush where you have to watch yeah. your, hey, you have to but, watch your pan and shit. And they're like, you trying to steal what? What you got yeah, there? Yeah, like, no. There, <laughs> there is people that go out with metal detectors looking there for are. shit and doing there stuff. Are. Got some gold? <laughs> no. <laughs> we talked about this before. I know. I said I was not going to do one. No, episode. and I started it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
We see them digging at night and June finds it easily. Buried underneath the tree is a shopping bag. And inside the bag, there is Alice's favorite bracelet, her ring, her watch, her phone. They're described as her most precious things. And they didn't understand why she would bury them on a school trip. Once they get back to the house, they plug Alice's phone in and it lights up. We cut to the video footage from Alice's phone, taken August 5th, 2005. Using the light of her phone, Alice wanders around alone. There is no sound except for the wind. Suddenly, we are back in the session with Ray and Alice. He asks if she's scared of dying, and she laughs. Of course she is. Isn't everyone? Ray asks if she would like to tell him more about the dream she's been having. Alice says that she feels like something bad is going to happen to her, like something bad has happened. It hasn't reached her yet, but it's on its way. It's getting closer and she doesn't feel ready for it. She feels like she can't do anything about it. In the video from Alice's phone, there's a figure standing in the darkness. The figure glides closer and lurches forward, and we see its swollen and bloated face and the frame freezes. Russell says that he recognized the face instantly. It was the same face of the body that he'd identified as his daughter when they pulled it out of the dam. We see the body that he identified and the faces are identical. Now, this is the moment. Capital T, capital M. Mm -hmm. Scared the shit out of me. Still scares the shit out of me. Uh, It was I wasn't expecting it. That was a very cool visual. Yes. I felt this moment viscerally. Yeah. And I think that it raises so many fascinating, terrifying, and tragic questions. Yeah. Yes. I think that this is going to stay with me for the rest of my life. It, it <laughs> is horrifying, genuinely horrifying. Yeah. And this is where I can tell you a little bit more about Lake Mungo that you kind of hinted at a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. In that interview in Split Tooth Media, they had said that they think that for people outside of Australia, the use of Lake Mungo is lost on them a little bit. And they had said that for tens of thousands of years, this lake, quote unquote, has been dry. Okay. And so the history of this place, the ghosts of this place, potentially, the stories of this place, the dry lake and what Alice sees there, Uh Mm -hmm. it only makes it more haunting. Yeah. Because of the method of what we know is to come. Yeah. To see that here. No water here. Exactly. So it's it's I mean <laughs> it's 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 horror on top of horror. Yes. June says that there is no rational explanation for what they saw on that phone. We see the face again, frozen against the black sky behind it. Later, when the girls find Alice sitting alone, Kim records as another girl hugs her. A storm gathers and the Palmers watch it from under the covering of the porch at the lake house. In the video, after hugging the girl, Alice stands and jogs along with them, rejoining the group. Ray watches the rain splatter the blinds of his window as Alice runs with her friends. June says that she's convinced Alice knew she was going to die. The figure at Lake Mungo was an omen and the burial of her possessions was a symbolic ritual. In the video, the frame freezes on Alice's face, looking worried and distraught. And she does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Russell says that he never thought that Alice knew she was going to die. Sure, she had morbid thoughts, but everyone does. He realizes that her nightmares were upsetting enough for her to contact Ray, but he doesn't know if anyone is really convinced that they're going to die. I'm extra pissed off at Ray. 
Yeah. After what you've seen, Mm -hmm. the conversations you've had, yeah, you're really still gonna be, you know, uh, I don't like you. (laughs) I don't like you, Ray. If you're listening, (laughs) (laughs) I'm coming for that ass, Ray. (laughs) (laughs) The chickens come to roost, Ray. And I do want to point out if it was lost on anyone that she met with Ray before her trip to the lake, Mm -hmm. which makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because it only solidifies this fear. Yeah. Yeah. The interviewer asks how Alice would have explained the figure that she saw at Lake Mungo. Russell has to think it over for a minute and says that he thinks that Alice saw a ghost, but she didn't realize that it was her own. Matthew says that he thinks Alice recorded a ghost and it was the future coming to get her. Sitting at her kitchen table, June says that they found out about the Tuies, about Alice having gone to see Ray and about what happened at Lake Mungo. Once they came back home, the house felt different to them. It was calm. She proposes that Alice wanted them to know more about her, who she really was before she could finally leave. As we see the family happily eating together at a restaurant and Matthew and Russell running together, June says that they slowly started to feel like a family again. She says that Ray called them out of the blue and said he'd be coming through town and he wanted to know if it was okay to come by for a visit. T, is it okay? Hell no! (laughs) (laughs) If you call this house again... But we see Ray being greeted warmly by the Palmers and walking with them to a picnic outside. June says that six months had gone by and she didn't really think that seeing Ray could do any harm. Russell said that Lake Mungo had really been closure for all three of them as we see them navigating the world and engaging in hobbies. He says that it was strange to them that Alice would withdraw from them so abruptly and they didn't help or change anything. They just all made a decision to move forward. Moving house was a big part of all of that. We see them packing up their home to move. We see them at a party, but standing in her packed up kitchen, June says that it will be difficult to move. Sometimes she even forgets that Alice isn't coming back. We see family videos of them all together, interacting and walking down the street. It fades to black and on screen text reads June's final consultation with Ray. We scan over Ray's tapes before stopping on June's, dated June 15th, 2006. Sitting across from each other, he tells her again to close her eyes and find her house. He instructs her to go through the front door. We see the home as it's described, and June says that she's walking down the hall to Alice's room. Suddenly, we are in Alice's session, where she describes someone coming down the hall, Ray asks if she knows who it is, and we peer around the corner, and we're with June again. He asks if she wants to go inside Alice's room, and she tells him, okay. We enter her room, and Ray asks, what do you see? Alice answers, my mom. Ray asks what she's saying, and Alice says that she's not saying anything. We see June's face, focused with her eyes closed, sitting across from Ray. Alice says that she doesn't even think her mother knows that she's there. June confirms this, telling Ray plainly that Alice isn't there. Alice says that June is turning around and leaving the room. She's gone. In her session, Ray tells June to open her eyes, and she does. She goes to wash her hands and face in the bathroom, and alone, Ray sighs. In the next scene, the Palmers load up a moving van. After the van drives off, June heads back inside the cleared-out house, She walks around alone in Alice's room, picking up a cord left on the ground as she goes. 
We hear Alice's voice. She's going now. She's leaving the room. June does. Russell and Matthew finish loading up the car and the family takes off, leaving the empty house behind. Alice says, she's gone. We see the photo of the remaining Palmers that we saw at the very beginning. And after rewatching, this is moving day. Mm -hmm. This is them taking a photo outside the house as they're leaving. The window is just over June's shoulder and the camera slowly presses in on it. Standing there in the window, we see the vague suggestion of a figure. It cuts to black in the credits roll. But the credits are interrupted when we come back on the video of Matthew's birthday. As the family sings to him, we freeze to see Alice's figure standing just off to the side. In the Withers video, Alice stands just over Douglas's shoulder as his wife tries to focus the camera. In Matthew's backyard photo, Alice sits on the bench to the far right of the screen. So the hoaxed one, she's there. Yeah. yeah. Like it's... as you're watching the movie, she's yeah. there. Mm -hmm. Just before the rest of the credits start, we see a video and I searched high and low of someone that I could hope would explain this little piece of video to me mm -hmm. because the music gets very like pensive on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it looks to be Alice sitting in a chair with a pillow in her lap. I paused it. I looked for stuff in the background. One person on Reddit said that it looks like she's playing with a Ouija board on the pillow. It I cannot confirm that. It kind of does, but I mean, it also just looks like she's holding a pillow. Yeah. Her hand is in planchette position. <laughs> it, I mean, it is. A <laughs> it, does look, it does look like a pillow to yeah. me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the, I don't know what that is. If it's just yeah. a video of her, I, I, that confused me and I spent way too long trying to explain that. Mm -hmm. But the serene and sad music of the credits slowly fades out to a steady beeping as the credits end and we are left with one more image of someone standing on the beach of Lake Mungo, illuminated by the lightning flashing behind them. So, what did you guys think about Lake Mungo? Before we get into that, because I got to <laughs> ask that, but let's talk about what the fuck we just saw. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I will say the pre-credit bit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the pensive piano, the photographs. I don't know how it's possible to have goosebumps and tears in your eyes Literally. at the same, yeah. <laughs> the same time. Um, the last shot after the credits, yeah. I feel like that's probably one of the saddest shots in the film mm -hmm. because it's her i mean along with the other photos it's her still being there yeah, yeah. well there's a shot i can't remember at one point it's obviously after we see the video but it's this exact shot with the lightning the same everything but it's empty mm. yeah and then after the credits it's there again but there's someone standing there well and it does look a lot for me, anyway, that it looks a lot cleaner than any of the other photos or anything we've yeah. seen. Yeah, it does. Before. Yeah. So I, I that's kind of what I took at took it as the same thing. Like you said, she's still at the lake. So that she's just stuck there now. But um, into our thoughts, yes, mm -hmm. and feel free to chime in because I did want to talk about that um theory that I read, mm -hmm. and it was that Matthew killed Alice, that he drowned her at the dam. Uh, 
the only time I really thought that he was like to blame was like I we had talked about it earlier and then you and then uh it's when he's taking the video over and she's like get out of my room or whatever it's like oh so were you did you hate your sister were you obsessed with her or what happened or what you know what's going on a lot of people um took it as he was obsessed with her Mm -hmm. um like when they're walking down the street he's messing with her um that when he walks in the room and she's like get out or whatever for me it very much gave little brother i don't know if matthew's younger than her but it was like dude like you know anybody who has a younger sibling that that's what it gave to me but i mean no offense (laughs) (laughs) but you just want them to get Get the fuck out (laughs) when you can't help but just fucking scream (laughs) at it um that's how i i read it the watching it the first time i did watch it twice and there are a couple moments, I guess, where you can, I can almost see, mm-hmm. but I, I, not really. I feel like a lot of people cite the bruises that they were um, defensive marks or whatever. Right. But she, this happened December 12th. Yeah. That was in March mm-hmm. that he came because these bruises appeared. Right. So for me, that is not compelling evidence because yeah. I don't think that they would show up three months later. And I don't think that he would fake these photos to help the body get exhumed if he killed her. Yeah, that that's kind of too what I was like. I don't think it. And was, everybody's like, it watch it again, watch it again. It's all right there. And I, I mean, I, if that's your takeaway, that is that's really intriguing and that's interesting. But me personally, I don't subscribe. Well, to but that. but we we did talk about earlier too because I did I did notice that and I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, the little brother did it. Mm-hmm. Um. But Bur- never mind. Name? <laughs> yeah. Bleep that. Yeah. Allegedly, allegedly. I, didn't yeah. allegedly. I was saying burr. It's cold in here. Oh, you better. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone asks. Right. Um, but they do a really good job of throwing you off and making everybody kind of seem suspicious about something or hiding something or something's going on other than uh, the mom and dad. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think they do it with a lot of the characters. So it is kind of I I noticed it, but again I know I think after a minute I was like okay no it was them oh no maybe they did it it's like oh now the psychic knows something you know what I mean so I feel like the movie does a really good job of continuing to confuse you about what you're or who you're supposed to be looking at for sure I I saw people point fingers at the dad because he just wanted to get back to work and get on but. I can think of times in my life where I've been very unhappy. And so I'm like, I'm throwing myself into this thing. Yeah. This is going to occupy my mind. Mm -hmm. It's going to occupy my time. I'm not going to have time to be sad. It's the, it's the thing of, you know, you can't judge other people's Uh -uh. grief. Yeah. Not at all. Everybody grieves differently Mm -hmm. and in different ways, uh, publicly, privately. Yeah. You know, and I think they did a really good job with the Palmer showing three very different ways Mm -hmm. of mourning this loss. Um, but I guess I'm supposed to be saying what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this film is phenomenal. I my my only issue with it is my only remaining issue with it because I did have a big issue. But the more that I've thought about it, I'm like, fuck. I feel like that was on purpose. Um, the bruises with Matthew. I feel like there are moments where obviously they're misleading us mm-hmm. with the presentation of of her image and in, in the in the pictures and the videos, whatever. I feel like that's enough misleading and twists i don't need you to introduce these other things that it's like oh you're showing us this for a reason and again the banging of doors and stuff that is not what alice 
dead. So yeah. the presenting that, I'm like, okay, maybe all the the sounds and shit they heard, that was the neighbor rifling through her room and trying to find the was he also beating Matthew's ass in his yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, <laughs> <Jesus>. I don't <laughs> you've presented these things that have no um they don't continue and there is no resolution or explanation to them as far as I was able to ascertain if anybody else you know besides the Matthew Kilder theory because I already I've already read that um <laughs> if you have another reason that these things could happen I'm very open to hearing about that but that is an issue for me just a couple things that like it's like you're throwing enough at us this is already a roller coaster we don't need the stuff that doesn't really pan out Mm -hmm. um i will say that i thought that it was a horrible tragedy that happened both times that i've watched this before watching it the third time i feel like what june said that she had it was she did it um, at the dam that she had cleaned her room. She made mention of how neat her room was. She buried her items. I feel like she had this cloud looming over her and then seeing it at the at the lake, she was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what the affair with the Tuies was about. And that um, in the pool video, I think that was in like March maybe. Um, she looks like she has a crush on Brett Tuie. And so it feels like, look, she's like, I'm fucking dying anyway. You know, it felt like, you know, I'm to me. No, oh, yeah. Maybe an experience that she was like, I'm going to do this before I die. I know I'm going to die. And then she, you know, did whatever. She had one last day of fun because she was having fun in those videos at the dam. And she was like, this is it. That's for. And I never looked at it that way until watching it the last time. And I was like, fuck, I think that that was the intention of her intention of going out there. Okay. I did kind of want to share an article that Jules shared with me from the final girls.co.uk. It's an article written by Aurora Adaman. And she kind of had a fascinating reading of Lake Mungo as almost as a theory of reclaiming the narrative for Alice by Alice. Yeah. Because whenever we watch this film, the majority of the film We don't know Alice. We only know Alice through what everyone else is telling us about Alice. Okay. And it isn't until we find her footage that she shot herself where she's like, this is the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she reclaims her own story instead of it being this speculation, this thing of like, maybe it was the twoies. Maybe it was the brother. Maybe it was the father. Like, just stop. Exactly. This is my story and I'm telling it. And then through this, we see her, and this was very astute from the the author of the piece, we see her in the way that she wants to be seen. She's not being seen through Matthew's lens anymore as we go through these credits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's seen in the way that she's presenting herself in these photographs. Yeah. And so it kind of takes on a different turn there. I uh, That was what I said, the big thing that I had an issue with that I'm like, you know what? It was that we didn't get to know Alice. Yeah. I was like, I would have loved to know her. What did she like to do? Mm-hmm. Who was she? You know, we only know her in relation to who is left. And that bothered me. But I'm like, you know what? That's kind of the whole fucking point. Yeah. Like Kim was saying, there was a different version of her that everybody, again, it's that you see you see what you want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, You thought that that was what, 
Alice was trying to tell you. Oh, we got it. Let's cross that off the list. Oh, the house is calm now. No, she's still there. She's yeah. right there in the window. You're not open to it. She visits her her mom. She's cold and scared and she stands at the end of her mom's bed. When her mom is dreaming it, she's too scared to open her eyes. She goes in the room and Alice is like, I see my mom. She doesn't see me. This is like a recurring thing over and over again of like you said, them missing each other. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, fuck, I think that you or the audience is right in feeling kind of robbed of, I don't even know who the fuck she is. Right. Because maybe nobody knew who the fuck she was. But then again, that feels kind of like a an indictment of documentaries in general. Yeah. yeah. When the subject isn't around to tell their own story, all we can do is piece together what there was. But is that fair? Is that accurate? I mean, we're probably only, not. Yeah, we're only getting one side of whatever they choose to tell us. Yeah. yeah. Your interpretation of this person. Yeah. Or the events within. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I've it, it's. And the the shots that we see at the end, the shot of her in the window, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's so sad that it's I can't even think about it too much. No, yeah. And the the, the whole displacement of time too, mm-hmm. yeah. Because the things that she, it's like when she saw that at the lake, it was a countdown. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, these premonitions that she's having, it was it came physically, mm-hmm. and so I mean, it's just like. These moments of her months and months before her mom sat down with Ray Mm -hmm. and they're experiencing this same moment. It's like, what, what, like what is happening? Yeah. But it makes you realize how crucial that moment was. Yeah. Yeah. And the tragedy of the fact that they missed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But goddamn, um, (laughs) this movie is a lot. It is sad as fuck. It's beautiful. It's very haunting. Mm -hmm. Somebody on Reddit was like, I feel like I'm grieving. And I'm like, I I get that. Like it is, it takes a lot out of you to even watch. Um, I don't think I'll be watching this one for a while just because I've spent a lot of time with it at this point. And it's just, it's devastating. But it's such a compelling story and such a compelling way to tell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, instead of us just fucking going on and on, uh, <laughs> what did you think about Lake Mungo? <laughs> um, well, we kind of just already talked about. <laughs> <laughs> I I I agree. I really like the movie, um, but it's it's just too sad for me. It's everything. If it has to do with the ghosts or the videos or whatever, I love all of that. But man, is it a fucking punch to the gut over and over and over. And then when you think that, you know, it does let up for a little bit, then they hit you again. And it's like, okay, we're going to let you relax for a second because we're going to scare you. Mm-hmm. But don't worry. Yeah. Because I'll be back. Yeah. It's like, all right. Um, but I mean, everybody gives a really good performance. Um, everything looks great. Every I won't like I can't even lie or any of that. Um, the thing I am still confused about is why did she see this future or why was it shown to her? Was she dabbling in something and it came back to bite her in the ass? Was I mean, anything? What? How, why? Why did this haunt her or, or what? What made this come about? You know what I mean? Because this is a terrifying, terrible story. Mm-hmm. This is like it's fucking terrible. But it's it is one of those things that I don't want to say isn't important, but it is still kind of there to where I'm like, okay, well, you explained everything else, 
well, what's the premonition or what is the, mm-hmm. you know, where'd that come from? Cause we did see, and, and those are cool. All the after credit shots and everything, even the one at the very end, that shit's spooky as fuck. Yes. But what does it mean? I think, it, and again, that's kind of another aspect of documentaries. Here's all this information. Here's all these stories. You decide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but most documentaries don't have real ghosts. Well, not yeah. <laughs> not typically. <laughs> they usually end a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, no, I I would just be repeating things. I it's it's just a remarkable film. Yeah. It's very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, the story of it. The more you watch it, the more you kind of have unveiled. Yeah. The more theories, the more ideas that come to mind. These very relatable and human fears yeah uh this palpable sadness and grief i will say that similar to what alice is experiencing post life Mm -hmm. i've had nightmares like this before and the shot of her in the window reminded me very specifically of a nightmare that I had about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking about that Mm-mm. all day. <laughs> and it's just, you know, for a movie to tap into something so universal. Yeah. This fear of, you know, oh, we don't have to get into my nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we've been sad enough. Yeah, we've been sad enough today. But, um, you know, I don't know. The, the film is just very, very incredible. There are a couple of things, as we said, you know, the bruises on Matthew don't quite understand. Yeah. Um, could be something that I missed, but I swear I was paying attention, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think that it's just a very, very well-crafted film. It is frightening in a lot of places. It is tragic in every place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I mean, you guys are... Right. Um, I think we already had like a pretty long conversation. So that's kind of those were my thoughts. on it. Very good. So we can just kind of go into ratings. Um, There are a couple things with the plot and the narrative. Like you were saying, John Paul, why? What happened? Yeah. And I I don't want a lot, but anything, even just a hint. And if that is her playing with the Ouija board at the end, Please give us just a li- make it a little more clear so that we can tell that even if it's, I mean, anything, even if she's just holding it, not playing with it. It's like, oh, you were fucking around. The That's way, what happened. The way that the music is over that last shot, I'm like, there has to be something in the background. There, yeah. like, there has to be. And I don't see, I'm just, that last, uh, that fucks me up. For me, I just took it as, this is Alice Palmer. Yeah. yeah. This is the tragedy of the loss of Alice Palmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I didn't. I don't know about Supernatural. Her hand is placed a little strangely. It's planchetti. Yeah. It is planchetti. Yeah. But um, I don't know. That made me think of pancetta. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're all hungry. Agreed, yeah. Get to it. Um, <laughs> get to it. <laughs> um, but I mean, and if that's what it is, that's enough. Because it is, it is devastating. It's tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the not knowing, and then again, we keep bringing up the bruises, but also the bruises, um, little stuff like that. I'm like, I just would have wanted more if this were a real documentary. I don't think those bruises ever would have made it in because they don't. There is no payoff. There is, there's nothing unless they were insinuating that Alice's ghost was doing that. But I mean, well, you know how 
absolutely tragic it is if she was trying to shake him to say see me yeah if there was something that i haven't seen anything like that since alice was seven and she would would jump on me to wake me up something like that Mm -hmm. yeah but again there is there's nothing there's no there's nothing um but yeah, it is just like I said, I, I don't think that I will be watching this one for a while. I will watch it again because I think it is a fantastic film. I think that everybody should watch it if you are in the right mental space mm-hmm. to watch it. Mm-hmm. I could really see this being too much for a lot of people. It was almost too much for me. There were points where I'm like, please, can you can somebody fucking jump out of something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I can you scare me so yeah. that I can just get a break from from this? sadness it's so heavy it's so sad but the story that they're telling is just it's so great and it makes me sad that he has not made another one Mm -hmm. not another like mungo but another horror film yeah i think he's producing a film i want to say it's called late night with the devil okay but um i think that's coming out soon but outside of that there's really nothing on his filmography that's all anybody says is like he made this and then he fucking broke out yeah. <laughs> so I But would, if you're gonna one and done. Uh, yeah, yeah, no shit. I would love I would love to see more from him. Um I mean we went over everything. The the music's really great, the all the camera work that you said at the top, that's admirable because it does come through. Mm-hmm. Um the performances are so, so realistic and the decision to have so much of it, well, all of it really improvised, I think that that pays off unbelievably. Just like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, (laughs) I just, I really can't say enough good. There are just those few things that give me a pause a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is phenomenal. And when you go back and you rewatch this and you see that she was really fucking there and we didn't even see her. And there were people on Reddit that were like, I saw the one in the corner before I saw that. You're a fucking liar. No, no, you didn't. No, 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 no. (laughs) See, and it's again, it's it's the documentarians. We were following them. Yeah. We were showing, we were seeing what they wanted us to see. And then Alice is like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the sixth sense. But right. it was, it's just... How are you going to get back to old boy <laughs> and demons? It's lot. It's, it's, it's lot. It's just lot, man. Um, no, th- this movie is incredible. But again, you got to be in the right space to receive it because it is, it is just devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that being said, I feel like we could go on and talk about this for another fucking hour. But all of that being said, on a scale from one to 10, falsely fabricated photos... I am going to give Lake Mungo nine out of 10 falsely fabricated photos. I know that that is high. I gave an extra 0.5 because of the feeling that I got re-examining all of the evidence that was in my face and I missed. Okay. I'm trying to think of another example where that feeling was comparable and I kind of can't. Um, but I will now open up the floor to you. Um, no, yeah, I, I enjoy the movie, but for me, that feeling hurt the movie for me. I've, I've stated before, I'm not for the bleak and I don't like, you know, I don't want to be sad. And that's really a lot of what this movie is, is it's fucking sad and terrible. And there is a really, really good ghost story in there. Mm hmm. But damn, am I constantly being reminded of how bad 
shit is going for this family and what's going on. And it's it's it is very heavy and it's hard sometimes to to watch that. Um when I'm looking for the ghosts and the scares to break that so that I can mm-hmm. be like, please, I don't want to feel like this anymore. That's that's the perfect way to describe it. I feel like I was grieving after I watched this shit. It's like, God damn, when is another like 10 year anniversary or something? Like this was <laughs> a lot. Yeah. But on the same token, uh, or on this fucking this movie, if you wa- if you like you said, if you're strong enough, you know what I mean? Rewatching it, you can see all that shit that's there mm-hmm. that's explained. Yeah. It is all there. And it's like, oh shit, I didn't notice that. Because watching it for the show, uh, I still didn't notice it until the end. Mm-hmm. And then when we put it on this morning to kind of let it play while we were getting ready and everything, I looked and I'm like, it's everything is right fucking there. Mm-hmm. So the movie does really, really good. And it's a very good movie. And if you are strong enough and you're you're in the right headspace and you can sit down and go through this, I'd recommend watching it. But just know it is a very heavy subject matter what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, on a scale of one to ten, falsely fabricated photos, I had to minus a five points. And give it a 7.5. You mean a 0.5? I'm 0.5. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh I'm sorry. <laughs> Take away half a point. Let's, let's we'll be giving it, it a two. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 the everything again, the ghosts, the ghosts, the ghosts, the imagery, the, the shooting, the scenes, the everything is beautiful and great. Mm-hmm. But God damn, do I need to be prepared to watch this movie? Yeah. It's so fucking sad. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this again. Mm -hmm. Like, I need a minute. And I completely, yes. Yeah. (laughs) I I feel like, I mean, I don't know. There's something so powerful about this movie. Mm -hmm. The way that it can make you feel so much. Yeah. And I, I just feel like, again, this is one of those films that I don't know how we discovered it. Yeah. But I'm so glad that we did. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad everyone on Patreon voted it in this month for us to talk about. Oh, yeah. I, I just feel, I mean, and then I, I obviously came to the table with a score, but I feel like the more we've dissected it, the more that we've kind of theorized and especially seeing the shot in the film of the window and being reminded so viscerally of a nightmare that I had mm-hmm. Yeah, and reliving all the emotions of all that. That that just demonstrates the power. The, I guess the relatability of these fears, mm-hmm. the universal feeling of just, I don't know, grief, loneliness, existential dread. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that we all worry and feel when it comes to the topic of death. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just so brilliantly crafted. That was another thing that I meant to mention. Whenever they have the shot of her vision at Lake Mungo, Mm -hmm. they kind of had a back and forth with some of the producers because they told them that they were kind of worried about them shooting this on a cell phone. And they stuck to their guns because they're like, well, can't you shoot it on 35 millimeter and then degrade it? And they're like, no, No. you can't. It's not going to feel the same. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say, because we can tell. Yeah. But we can also tell when it is through a cell phone and that makes it feel like we're doing that. Yes. Yes. 
and them going through those painstaking efforts mm-hmm. to use all of these technologies, using all of these different cameras when it called for it. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect yeah, and admirable. And I mean, these performances, like you said, about the improvisation, everything felt so genuine. You catch this on television without being told what it is. Yeah. You just watched a real documentary. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. This film is very, very special in that way. And I think that it is one, if you are in the right headspace, please watch it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And please watch it again. Yes. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I guess that's all I've got. But I can give you my rating now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we need one more thing. Out of 10 falsely fabricated photos, I am also going to be giving Lake Mungo a 9 out of 10. Hey! I came to the table with an 8.5, but I just think that the more I think about this movie, the more I realize how much it is clinging to my bones. (laughs) You can have my share. Well, that's all from us at Podmortem. What would you rate Lake Mungo and what should we watch next? Let us know on Twitter at the Podmortem. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and like our Stairhole Productions page on Facebook. Be sure to follow each of us on Twitter at Blood and Smoke, at RealStreeter84, and at TravisMWH. Thank you again to Original Cinematic for sponsoring this week's episode. Please consider pledging to our Patreon and stay tuned until after the music for a special shout out to our Wendigo Getter patrons. And remember, In a world where it is easy to be lost behind screens and filters, it is important to surround yourself with people who make you feel truly seen. Until next time. Thank you for staying tuned for a special thank you to our Wendigo Getter patrons. Woo! Yeah! Yeah! Good job! A special thank you to... Chris Ontiveros, Kristen Lofton, Megan Martinez, Kimberly Bass, Sophie Hodson, Anthony Jerome M., Jordan Nash, Kent Morton, Lala Thomas, Travis and Nisa Hunter, Miguel Myers, ATX, Jennifer Perez, Allison O'Neill, Carissa, TJ and Angie Bronson, Gabrielle Trevino, Spooky Mom, Applin Ontiveros, Karima Rhodes, Antonio Huerta, Kimberly Kleindienst, Will Brown, Sydney Smith, Osvaldo Soto, Bobby Holmes, Donna Eason, J.D. Rizak, Molly Gerhardt, Armand Spasto, Aaron Aguirre, Eggy, William Berry, Brittany Ramatar, Charity Oxner, Amanda Six, Mandy Rainwater, Jordan Roberts, Dylan, Melissa Sierra, Holly Bryan, Jordan Blevins, Liz Heath, Spencer Montalvo, Pancake the Panda, John Ramos, Michael Newding, Alexis Roberts, Dan Laveau, Itsy M., Gary Horton, Leisha Olivier, Kate Lamp, Carlos and Sydney, Jessica Hunter, Helena Rudder, Alan Johnston, Mariah, Livy Fun, Mandy M, Scott Troutman Wise, Mozzie Bear, Brittany G, Dave Burke, Adrian Stakes, Daniel McGinnis, Nick Spill, Emma Hagel Kissinger, Valerie G, Emiliana, Brian Glass, CB, Taylor Santana, Will Lewison, Angelique, Smelly Poopoo Head, Beth Bauer, Cookie, Esperanza J, Jason Kyle OKC, Joshua Rumley, Danielle Peralta, Brandon, Nicholas Carter, Sawyer Reese Farr, Dr. Diva Loves Horror, Girl That's Scary, Cassandra, Andrea Simmons, Ashley Hagetta, William and Zena Rush, Ryan Brom, Megan Ochoa, Laura Lasseter, Natalie De Guzman, Eileen O, Marissa E, 
Sydney, Henry F., Megan M., Strangely Sarah, Christy Beck, Nancy and Andy, Amanda Lopez, Andy Terrell, Jason Hanavan, Abigail Spitzer, Katie K., Erica Morin, Cameron S., Nicole Stewart, Tris Wynn, K.87, Mariah Jensen, Carrie A., Lonnie Lono, Powell, Kayla E., Maggie H., Fernando Dominguez, Murder Stina, No Thanks Tom Hanks, Kevin McConnell, Kristen Marcy, Ori81 Boricua, Look Like That One Girl, Bog Boy, Felnez 63, Alita Pui, Probably My Jugs, Kate Thackeray, Wade Pack, A Lizard, Bay J, J Rich, Jen Lassiter, Topher Williams, Elena Mettler, Neil Chesson, Valerie Kay, Christy Lee Kruger, Professor of Humanities Laura McCarricker, Naomi, Josh Smith, Autumn Green, Jess L, Heather Santiano, Abby Kopp, Crystal 831, Cassidy Carruthers, Skank Sinatra, Morgan Alexander, Tony Osteen, Julie Fredborg, Rihanna S, Daniel Taylor, Anna Kate, Heather Ortiz, Jen T, Kim H, Dana Cook, August, Vengeful Spirit, Ernest Acquisitions, Sam J. Green, Kelly Glazy Face Mac, and Cindy Palmer. Thank you. Thank you yes, all. Yes, thank you. I will say you need to know that we appreciate you so damn ah. much. All right. All right. Like the, the, the scene of that tragedy. Tragedy. Yeah. yeah I probably should have <laughs> something damn, else. Yeah. <laughs> sorry You're gonna with that? I'm sorry to everyone. Good God, man. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>